Chapter 31 I drove the Red Cross van up to the shelter. I pulled in right in front, put it in park, and said, You two go in first. I'm sure whoever the vamps have working for them will recognize me, at least by description. Outside chance they'll know Murph, too, but the uniform might make them play along until you can get any bystanders out of the building. How should I do that? Kincaid asked. Hell's bells, you're the big-time mercenary. What am I paying you for? I said, annoyed. What's unit response time down here, Murphy? This is gang country. Officially about six minutes. Reality is more like ten or fifteen. Maybe more. So we call it six or seven minutes to get clear after someone calls CPD, screaming about rabid dogs and gunfire, I said. The longer before that happens, the better. So get it done calmly and quietly, Kincaid. Talk them out if you can. No problem, Kincaid said, and leaned his spear against the dashboard. Let's go. Murphy held her weapon down and close to her side and followed Kincaid into the building. I waited, but I had already planned to go on in if I didn't hear anything in the next minute or so. I started counting to sixty. On forty-four, the door opened, and a couple of bedraggled men and three or four raggedly dressed women, all of them more beaten down than actually aged, came shambling out. Like I said, it shouldn't take long, Kincaid was saying in a bluff, heavy, cheerful voice marked with the harder, shorter vowels of a Chicago accent. He came along behind the street folk, shepherding them out. It's probably just a faulty detector. As soon as the guys from the gas company check out the basement and make sure it's safe, we'll get set up and get everyone paid. An hour, tops. Where is Bill? demanded one of the women in a querulous voice. Bill is the man from the Red Cross. You aren't Bill. Vacation, Kincaid said. His good-natured smile did not touch his eyes. They remained cold and uncaring as he reached through the van's window and picked up his spear. The woman took one look at his expression, another at the weapon, then ducked her head and scurried away from the shelter. The others followed suit, scattering like a covey of quail alerted to a sudden danger. I went inside and Kincaid backed in after me, shutting the door. The reception area looked more like a security checkpoint. A small room, a couple of chairs, a heavy security door, and a guard station behind a window of heavy bars. But the security door had been propped open with one of the chairs, and I could see Murphy standing in the room on the other side, her riot gun held level, her stance alert and ready. I walked over to her. The room beyond the reception area was the size of a small cafeteria. Cubicle walls sprouted in one corner like some kind of crystalline growth. Half a dozen people, dressed in business casual, stood passively against the nearest cubicle wall, and Murphy had her gun leveled at them. They should have been afraid. They weren't. They just stood there, eyes dull, faces set in vacant, bovine expressions. Harry, she said. Kincaid said we shouldn't let them out until you made sure they weren't dangerous. Yeah, I said. I hated to think of leaving simple thralls staring stupidly at nothing, given all the violence on the immediate agenda, but that would have been better than setting some bloodthirsty Renfield loose somewhere behind me. I closed my eyes for a moment, concentrating. There were a thousand other things I would rather do than examine victims of the black court with my sight but we didn't have time for anything else. I opened my eyes along with my sight and focused on the people standing in line. 
I don't know if you've ever seen a sheep slaughtered for mutton. The process isn't fast, even if it isn't really cruel. They make the sheep lie down on its side and cover its eyes. The sheep lies there without struggling, and the shepherd takes a sharp knife and draws a single neat line across its throat. The sheep jerks in a sharp twitch of surprise while the shepherd holds it gently down. It smells blood and stirs more. Then the animal quiets again under the shepherd's hand. It bleeds. It doesn't look real the first time you see it, because the blood is too bright and thick, and the animal isn't struggling. There's a lot of blood. It spreads out on the ground, soaking into dirt or sand. It dyes the wool of the sheep's chest, throat, and legs a dark, rusty red. Sometimes the blood gets into a puddle around its nose, and the animal's breaths make scarlet ripples. Before the end, the sheep might twitch and jerk another time or two, but it's silent, and it doesn't really make an effort to fight. It lies there, becoming more still, and after several minutes that stroll past in no great hurry, it dies. That's what they looked like to my sight, those people the vampires had enthralled. They stood calmly, relaxed, thinking of nothing. Like sheep, they had been blindfolded to the truth somehow. Like sheep, they did not struggle or flee. Like sheep, they were being kept for whatever benefit their lives would provide. And like sheep, they would eventually be taken for food. I saw them, defenseless and beaten, blood soaking into their clothing while they lay still under the hand of a being more powerful than they. They stood quietly, dying like sheep. Or rather, five of them did. The sixth was a Renfield. For the briefest second, I saw the sixth victim, a burly man of middle years and wearing a blue Oxford shirt, as a sheep like the rest of them. Then that image vanished, replaced by something inhuman. His face looked twisted and deformed, and his muscles swelled hideously, bulging with blackened veins and quivering with unnatural power. There was a band of shimmering, vile energy wreathing his throat in an animal's collar the reflection of the dark magic that had enslaved him. But worst of all were his eyes. The man's eyes looked as if they had been clawed out by something with tiny, scalpel-sharp talons. I met his blind gaze, and there was nothing there. Nothing. Just an empty darkness so vast and terrible that my lungs froze and my breath locked in my throat. By the time I realized what I was seeing, the man had already let out a feral shriek and charged me. I shouted in surprise and tried to back up, but he was simply too fast. He backhanded me. The enchantments on my duster diverted much of the power in it, so it didn't crack any of my ribs, but it was still strong enough to throw me from my feet and into a wall. I dropped to the floor, stunned. An angel, blazing with fury and savage strength, spun toward the Renfield her eyes shining with azure flame, a shaft of fire in her hands. The angel was dressed in soiled robes, smudged with smoke and blood and filth, no longer white. She bled from half a dozen wounds and moved as if in terrible pain. Murphy. There was a peal of thunder, and flame leapt from the shaft of light in her hands. The Renfield, now deformed with muscle like some kind of madman's gargoyle, accepted the blow and batted the shaft of light from the angel's hands. 
She dove for the weapon. The Renfield followed, reaching for her neck. Something hit it hard, a second shaft, though this one was made not of light, but of what looked like solidified smog of black and deep purple. The blow drove the Renfield from its feet, and the angel recovered the fallen weapon. Another shaft of light thundered into the Renfield's head, and it collapsed abruptly to the ground. I shook my head, trying to tear away from the painful clarity of my sight. I heard a footstep nearby. Still stunned, I looked behind me. For just a second, I saw something standing there. Something enormous, malformed, something silent and merciless and deadly. It had to crouch to keep from brushing the ceiling with the horns curling away from its head, and bat-like wings spread from its shoulders to fall around it and behind it to drag along the floor. And I thought I saw some kind of hideous double image lurking behind it, like the corpse specter of death himself. Then the second was passed. I pushed my side away, and Kincaid stood frowning down at me. I said, are you all right? Yeah, I said. Yeah, just clipped me. Kincaid offered me his hand. I didn't take it. I pushed myself to my feet instead. His expression became opaque. It had an alien quality to it that made it more frightening than when it had been merely unreadable. He stepped over to the body of the middle-aged man in the blue Oxford shirt and jerked his spear out of the corpse. It was wet with blood all the way to the cross brace. I shuddered but asked Murphy, You okay? She still gripped the riot gun as she stood over the body, keeping her eyes on the five people remaining. There was a bloody, pulpy mess where the first shot had ripped open the man's leg, but it hadn't even slowed him down. It was messier where Murphy's second shot had torn into his head. Not that he would have been any better off if she'd hit him in the chest. People don't survive direct hits from shotguns delivered from a couple of steps away. Murph? I asked. Fine, she said. Some of the Renfield's blood had sprayed onto her cheek, beading into red droplets below her distant eyes. I'm fine. What now? Kincaid stepped up beside Murphy and put his hand on the end of the riot gun's barrel. He pushed gently, and she shot him a look before taking a steadying breath and lowering the weapon. Kincaid nodded at the remaining thralls. I'll get these five out and meet you at the stairs. Don't go down without me. Don't worry, I said. We won't. He prodded the five thralls into motion and herded them out of the building. I oriented myself on the room's doors, remembering Bob's handy-dandy map, and headed for the door that led down to the basement. Murphy walked beside me. She said nothing, but fed two more shells into the riot gun. She reached for the doorknob. I put mine there first. Hold it, Murph, I said. Let me check it for surprises. She looked at me for a second and then nodded. I closed my eyes and laid my hand on the door, gently pushing my awareness through the door, feeling silently for patterns of energy that might indicate magical wards, like the ones protecting my apartment. My magical awareness was akin to the sight, just as my sense of touch was akin to my sense of sight. It cost me less than opening the sight, and was infinitely more gentle to my psyche. I felt nothing, no waiting wards or pre readied traps of Mavra's deadly black magic. 
Generally speaking, the bad guys weren't terribly interested in learning defensive magic when they could be out blowing things up instead. But I was determined not to get sucker-punched on something that basic. He was already gone, I told Murphy. She said nothing. I saw him, Murph. I saw him. There wasn't anything left inside him. He was less than an animal. There was nothing else you could have done. She spoke very quietly. Shut the fuck up, Harry. I did. I finished my check, felt around for the presence of any supernatural entities that might be right on the other side of the door, and listened to Boot. Nothing. When I opened my eyes again, Kincaid was standing there with Murphy. I hadn't heard his approach. Clear? he asked. I nodded. The door isn't warded. I don't think there's anything waiting on the other side, but I can't be sure. Kincaid grunted, glanced at Murphy, then leaned back and kicked the door open. Murphy blinked at me. Kincaid was a big guy, sure, but it's tough to kick doors down on the first try. I'd seen men batter one with those same vicious kicks for fifteen minutes before the door gave way. Maybe he'd just gotten lucky. Yeah, I believed that. The image of that enormous, demonic thing that had crouched in the mercenary's place loomed with a terrible clarity in my head. Kincaid landed on balance, lifted the spear, and pointed the head and its attached flashlight down the closed, narrow stairway. There was only silence. And then the sound of a soft, mocking laugh from somewhere in the darkness below us. Hell's bells. The back of my neck crawled up my scalp and into one ear. Form up, I murmured, because it sounded more military and tougher than saying, You guys go first. Kincaid nodded and took a step down. Murphy readied the riot gun again and pressed in behind him. I picked up my air-powered pop gun and followed her. Where are they keeping the hostages again? Murphy asked. In a closet at the bottom of the stairs on the right. That was hours ago, Kincaid said quietly. They could be anywhere now. Once we go down there, there's no room for playing around. The hostages are our first concern. Screw that. That's exactly why the vamps took hostages in the first place, Kincaid said. If you let them dictate your tactics, they're going to use it to kill you. That isn't your concern, I said. Kincaid's voice became quieter and harder. It is when I'm standing this close to you, they might get me instead. That's why you get the big bucks. He shook his head. We don't even know if they're alive. Look, this is a basement. All we have to do is roll down the grenades and then go mop up whatever is left afterward. We're underground. The collateral damage will be minimal. That's not good enough, I said. We save the hostages first. Once they're clear, then we take care of business with Mavra. Kincaid glanced over his shoulder at me, his eyes narrow and cold. Defiance and contempt rang in every word. It might be a little harder to rescue them if we're dead. Murphy put the mouth of the riot gun against Kincaid's spine and said, How good is that armor? Sometimes Murphy has a way with words. We were all quiet for a couple of seconds. Then I said, 
We might get killed trying to save the hostages. We will get killed if we don't stick together. Do the math, Kincaid, or break your agreement and get out. He stared at Murphy for a second and then relented, turning back to face the stairway. Fine, he said. We do it your way. It's amateur night. We started down the first flight of stairs together, while whatever waited in the darkness below us laughed again. Chapter 32 The basement in the shelter was unusually deep, especially for Chicago. The stairs went down about ten feet and were only about two and a half feet wide. My imagination treated me to a brief vision of some grinning Renfield with a machine gun popping around the corner, already shooting, bullets tearing all three of us to shreds in the space of a heartbeat. My stomach writhed in pure, nervous fear, and I forced myself to put it aside and focus on my surroundings. The walls had been mortared and painted white, but cracks and mineral stains from damp spots all but concealed the original color. At the bottom of the stairs was a landing, maybe three feet square, and then a second set of stairs led farther down, the air getting more cramped and colder as they went. The stale air smelled like mildew and rot. Our breathing and our movements sounded incredibly loud in the otherwise oppressive silence that followed, and I found myself pointing the paintball gun forward over Murphy's head and Kincaid's shoulder so that I could start shooting as soon as something bounded into view, for all the good it was likely to do. Against any normal thug, the weapon would do little but make them damp or vaguely aromatic. The stairway ended at a half-open old door. Kincaid nudged it slowly open with his spear, already crouched. Murphy aimed her gun at the black doorway. Me too. The end of my stupid paintball gun quivered involuntarily. Nothing happened. Silence reigned. Damn it, I muttered. I don't have the nerves for this crap. Want me to find you a Valium? Kincaid asked. Kiss my ass, I said. He reached into his belt pouch and pulled out a couple of plastic tubes. He bent them sharply, shook them up, and they began to shine with chemical light. He edged up to the doorway and flicked one to the left, the other to the right, bouncing them off the walls so that he wouldn't expose himself to anyone in the hall beyond. Then he waited a beat and leaned out, peeking around. Nothing moving, he reported. No lights. But it looks like that map was pretty good. Hall on my right goes about ten feet, then ends at the door to that closet. Open hall on my left, twenty feet long, and opens into a room. Closet first, I said. Cover me. Kincaid flowed down the last couple of stairs and through the door. Murphy kept within a foot of his back. Kincaid peeled off to the right. Murphy dropped into a crouch, shotgun aimed down the green-lit hall to the left. I wasn't as smooth, but I went after Kincaid, paintballs and staff ready. The closet door was only five feet high and opened out toward the hall. Kincaid listened at the door, then leaned aside to let me touch it first. I couldn't feel any enchantments on it and nodded to him. He shifted his grip on the spear so that he'd be ready to drive the tip of it into anything that came at him from the closet, 
and drew the door open. The light from his spear flickered around a dank little chamber that was too big to be a proper closet and too small to be a room. Patches of moisture and mildew blotted the damp stone walls and the smell of unwashed bodies and waste rolled out of the door. Half a dozen children, none of them older than nine or ten, huddled against the back wall of the closet. They were dressed in cast-off clothing, most of it far too big, and they wore steel cuffs on their hands. The cuffs, in turn, were locked to a larger chain attached to a heavy steel ring bolted into the floor. The children reacted in silent terror, flinching away from the doorway and from the light. Children. Someone was going to regret this. If I had to take this building, hell, this block apart with nothing but raw will and my bare hands, someone was going to pay. Even the monsters should draw a line somewhere. Then again, I guess that's why they call them monsters. Son of a bitch, I snarled and ducked my head to step into the room. Kincaid abruptly threw his weight against me, shoving me aside from the door. No, he growled. Damn it, get out of my way, I said. It's a trap, Dresden, Kincaid said. There's a trip wire. Go through that door and you'll kill all of us. Murphy checked over her shoulder and returned to watching the darkness for trouble. I frowned at Kincaid and picked up the plastic light stick, holding it out. I don't see a wire. Not a literal wire, Kincaid said. It's a net of infrared beams. Infrared? How did you... Damn it, Dresden, if you want to know about me, wait for the autobiography like everyone else. He was right. It was a little late to be worrying about Kincaid's background now. Hey, kids, I said. Everybody stay really still and keep back, okay? We're going to get you out of here. I lowered my voice and said to Kincaid, How do we get them out of there? Not sure we can, Kincaid said. The beam is rigged up to an anti-personnel mine. Well, I said, can't we just... Can't you put a weight on a landmine and leave it there? So long as the weight holds the trigger down, it doesn't explode, right? Right, Kincaid said. But that's assuming we've gone back in time to World War II. He shook his head. Modern mines are pretty good at killing people, Dresden. This one's British, pretty recent. How can you tell? He tapped his nose. The Brits use a different chemical priming charge than most. It's probably a bouncer. Very nasty. Bouncer? Yeah. If something interrupts the beam, the charge activates. Several individual submunitions get blown up into the air, or sideways, or however they want to set it up, in a pattern. Then they explode maybe five or six feet in the air. Sends a couple of thousand steel balls out in a big cloud. Kills everything in 30, maybe 40 meters if you're in the open. Maybe a lot farther in a tight space like this. If it was me, I'd have set the charges up to get thrown straight down this hall. All these stone walls, the shrapnel would shred everything real good. I could hex down whatever is sending the beam, I said. Thus interrupting it, Kincaid said. Thus kablooey. Thus, death. Damn it. I swallowed and took a step back from the doorway, hoping the presence of my magic wouldn't screw up the device in a moment of monumentally bad timing. I can shield us if it's all coming in from one direction.
Kincaid arched an eyebrow. Yeah? Yeah. Damn. But it won't help those kids much. They're over there. I scowled ferociously. How do we disarm the device? You still don't want the Bolshevik Muppet solution, right? Right. Then someone has to crawl in there without setting it off, find the explosive, disable it, and unhook it from the sensors. Right, I said. Do it. Kincaid nodded. Can't. What? I can't. Why not? He nodded at the doorway. There are three beams set up in an asymmetrical crisscross over the doorway. There isn't enough room for me to get through the open spaces. I'm thinner than you, I said. Yeah, but longer and a hell of a lot gawkier. And I know what happens to tech when nervous wizards get close. Someone has to do it, I said. Someone small enough to... We both looked down the hall at Murphy. Murphy didn't look away from her vigil and said, How do I disarm it? I'll talk you through, Kincaid said. Dresden, better take her gun and cover us. Hey, I said, I'm in charge here. Kincaid, talk her through it. Murphy, give me your gun so I can cover you. I tied the handle of the paintball gun into my coat where my blasting rod usually went. I winked at Murphy, who saw the gesture and did not respond to it. She just passed me the gun and turned her baseball cap around. Then she walked down the hall, slipping out of her coat and gun belt on the way. Better lose the Kevlar, too, Kincaid said. I can pass it to you. Bottom left corner looks like the best bet. Stay as flat as you can and as much to the left as you can. I think you can get in. You think, I asked. What if you're wrong? He gave me an annoyed look. You don't see me telling you how to watch that goddamn doorway in case all the vampires show up at any second to kill us, do you? Kincaid asked. I was going to scowl at him, but he had a point. I scowled at the darkness instead, gripping Murphy's gun. I fumbled for a second because the riot gun must have been some kind of military issue, and it took me a second to find the safety. I flicked it to reveal the red dot. Or at least I thought it was red. The green chemical light made it look black. Stop, Kincaid said in a calm voice. Unclench. Unclench what? Murphy demanded. Unclench your ass. Excuse me? You're going to trip the beam. You need another quarter inch. Relax. I am relaxed, Murphy growled. Oh, Kincaid said. Damn great ass, then. Take off your pants. I winced and checked over my shoulder. Murphy was stretched out on the floor on her belly, her cheek on the cold floor, arms stretched above her. A small of her back was in the doorway. She managed to move her head just enough to eye Kincaid. Once again? Take off your pants, Kincaid said, smiling. Think of the children. She muttered something to herself and moved her arms, shifting slightly. No good, Kincaid said. You're moving too far. Okay, genius, Murphy said. What do I do? Hold still, Kincaid said. I'll do it. There was silence for a second. Murphy hissed out a breath, or maybe it was more of a gasp. I don't bite, he said. Be still. I want to live through this. Okay, Murphy said in a small voice a moment later. I scowled hard at the darkness and felt myself getting irrationally angry and fast. I glanced back again. Murphy wriggled forward all the way through the doorway. 
Her legs were pale, pretty, and strong, and I had to admit that Kincaid was completely correct about her posterior. Kincaid was bracing her legs, hands on her calves, and sliding down as she moved forward, helping her to keep them from accidentally moving too far. Or at least that damn well better have been what he was doing, because if it wasn't, I would be forced to kill him. I shook my head and returned to my vigil. Get a grip, Harry, I thought to myself. It isn't like you and Murphy are an item. She isn't something you own. She's her own person. She does what she wants with who she wants. You're not even involved with her. You've got no say in it. I ran through those thoughts a couple of times, found them impeccably logical, morally unassailable, and still wanted to slug Kincaid, which implied all kinds of things I didn't have time to think about. I heard them speaking quietly to each other a moment later. Murphy was describing the explosive, and Kincaid was giving her instructions. In the darkness beyond the last chemical light, I heard something move. I shifted my weight, reaching into my belt pouch for my own chemical light sticks. I pressed them against the floor to break the layer separating the two chemicals and shook them until they started to emit their own soft green fire. I threw them down the hall where they landed in the room beyond. The lights revealed little beyond more stone floor and some drywall. Bob had reported that the room was essentially a storage chamber, with several smaller chambers defined by recently installed drywall that could be used for storage, emergency shelters during the odd tornado warning, or additional rooms for those in need of a place to spend the night. But all I could see was half of a door, a couple of stacks of cardboard boxes, a dressmaker's dummy, and the glowing sticks of emerald light. And then something large and four-legged moved in front of one of the lights for a second or two. The dark hound was a large and rangy animal, maybe a large Alsatian, and it deliberately stayed in place for a moment before vanishing into the shadows once more. I kept the riot gun aimed down the hall and wished that Inari hadn't broken my damned blasting rod. I would far rather have had it than the gun. Without the blasting rod to help me focus and contain the destructive energies of flame I preferred, I didn't dare start blasting away at the bad guys with magic, especially in such tight quarters as the shelter. But then maybe it was just as well. I had already met my quota for burning down public institutions this week. I couldn't see anything else, but I knew there was something there. So I lowered my eyelids almost all the way, and focused my attention, listening. It was the faint sound of something breathing, but nothing more. It wasn't enough. I lowered the gun a bit, relaxing my shoulders, and poured more of my focus into it, listening more deeply than I ever had before. The sound of breathing became louder, and I picked out several other faint sources of it. A moment later I began to hear a dull throbbing, which I realized was a beating heart. More heartbeats joined it, a confused chorus of drumming beats, but I was able to identify individual rhythms into a pair of groups. One was a bit faster, lighter, smaller hearts, probably the dark hounds. There were four of them. The other group was human, and there were five hearts beating in an eager, savage cadence, pressed up against the walls on either side of the doorway, out of sight, but less than twenty feet away. 
and from the back of the room I heard footsteps, slow and deliberate. They slid quietly across the stone floor, and the wasted outline of an emaciated female form appeared in front of one of the glow sticks, and no heartbeat accompanied it. Mavra. The dark hounds appeared, vague shapes, and paced restlessly through the shadows around the vampire. My heart lurched in sudden apprehension, and I released my attention from the listening. I raised the gun, got to my feet, and backed away. Again, that soft, mocking laugh drifted through the basement. Trouble, I said over my shoulder. Five Renfields, four dark hounds at least, and Mavra's awake. Indeed, came Mavra's dry, dusty voice. I've been waiting for you, Dresden. There's something I've been meaning to ask you. Oh, I said. I looked over my shoulder at Kincaid and mouthed, How long? Kincaid had crouched and taken up his spear again. He glanced back and said, Thirty seconds. We take the kids and run, I whispered. I've been admiring you for some time now, Dresden, came Mavra's voice. I've seen you stop bullets with your power. I've seen you stop knives and claws and fangs. She made a gesture with her hand. And so I simply must know how well you will fare against your own weapon of choice. And two Renfields stepped out into the doorway, blocking my view of Mavra. Each of them held a long metal device in their hands, and each of them wore something that bulged out above their shoulders, gleaming shapes of rounded metal. A blue starter flame flickered at the end of the devices they held, and it hit me all at once what was happening. Both of the Renfields lifted their flamethrowers and filled the cramped little hallway with fire. Chapter 33 the riot gun went off, though I'm not sure if it was because I'd instinctively decided to use the weapon or if I'd just convulsed in surprise. The bad guys were twenty feet away, which was plenty of distance for the shot from the riot gun to spread. If I'd had it aimed well, it would almost certainly have put one of them down. As it was, the largest force of the blast went between them, though from the way they jerked and twisted, either the sheer roaring volume of the weapon was enough to intimidate them, or they'd caught a little shot as it went past. Fire coughed uncertainly from the mouths of the flamethrowers, spattering the hall along the floors, walls, and ceiling, where it clung in globs of what had to be a mix of gasoline or some other accelerant and petroleum jelly, homemade napalm. The air went from cold to roasting hot, even from the aborted discharge of fire, sucking the wind from my lungs. Both men, unassuming-looking types in ragged clothing, their eyes wide and fanatical, hesitated for a second before planting their feet again and taking aim once more. It was only a second, but it was enough to save my life. I dropped the gun, tossed my staff into my right hand, and shook out my shield bracelet. I rammed panicked will into the focus and spread it in a wall of energy before me. The Renfields cut loose this time, flame as thick as spray from a breached hydrant roaring down the hall. I caught it on the shield, but I had never intended it to stop heat. It was primarily a defense against kinetic energy, and while I had used it to handle everything from bullets to runaway elevator cars in my career as a wizard, it just wasn't all that good at stopping the transfer of intense heat. 
The napalm jelly splattered against the invisible shield, gallons of it, and the fire clung to it in white-hot glee. Its mindless fury seeped through the shield and flowed onto me. It hurt. Oh, God, it hurt. The fingers of my left hand were the first to feel it, and then my palm and wrist, all in the space of a second. If you've never been burned, you can't imagine the pain. And my fingers, where millions of tactile nerves were able to send panic damage messages to my brain, felt as if they had simply exploded and been replaced with howling agony. I jerked my hand back and felt my focus waver, the shield start to fade. I gritted my teeth and somehow managed to dig up the strength to extend my hand again, hardening the shield and my will. I backed away in shuffling half-steps, my mind almost drowning in pain, desperately keeping the shield up. Ten seconds! Kincaid shouted. I saw blisters rising on my left hand. I felt my fingers curling into a claw. They looked thinner, as if made of melting wax, and I could see the shadows of my bones beneath the flesh. The shield grew weaker yet. The pain got worse. I stood now at the bottom of the stairs, and as the shield faltered, the empty space between me and the doorway behind me might as well have been a mile. I didn't have ten seconds. I reached into myself, into the horrible red pain, and drew forth more power yet. I focused it on my staff, and the sigils and runes carved along its surface became suddenly suffused with eye-searing scarlet light. My nose filled with the smell of charring wood, and as the shield wavered out of existence, I screamed, Vintas Servitas! The power I'd gathered in my staff shot out of it, an invisible serpent of energy. The shield fell, just as a shrieking gale of wind shot down the stairs. The column of air howled against me, throwing my duster forward around me like a flag, and caught the blazing napalm like a tub of jello, hurling the fire back the way it had come and providing it with air enough to treble its size. The fire went mad. It seared mortar from rough stone and chewed cracks into the rock floor, the damp stone coughing and popping as water within expanded. For an instant I could see the two Renfields still spraying fire toward me. They started screaming, but they obeyed Mavra's raspy howls to stand fast, and it killed them. The napalm molded itself to them, and the flame embraced them. What hit the ground as they fell could not have been easily identified as human remains. I kept my will on the wind, the carved runes on my staff blazing ember-orange, and it spread the flames into the far room in a deadly river of searing light and charred black ash. For agonized seconds I held the winds and spread the flames, and then my will faltered, the runes on the staff dimming. Pain overcame me for a second, and it hurt so much that I literally could not see. Wizard! howled Mavra's voice, the words sounding like dusty scales and cold reptilian fury. Wizard! The wizard! Kill! Kill! Kill everything! Get him! Kincaid snarled. I felt Murphy get her arms under mine, and she started hauling me back with surprising power. I started seeing through the blinding agony in time to see a charred, inhuman-looking man wielding an axe leap at Kincaid. The mercenary rammed his spear full into the man's chest, stopping him in his tracks. A second man appeared from the smoke behind the first, this one holding a shotgun. 
There was a roaring sound, and fire tore through the impaled Renfield, then struck the second one full in the face with hideous, searing results. Kincaid jerked the spear clean of the corpse of the first Renfield, even as the second flailed around wildly, then pointed the shotgun in more or less the right direction. Kincaid whirled the spear into a reverse grip, slammed it into the second Renfield's chest, and the second incendiary round blasted out from the housing at the butt end of the spear and drove the remaining life from the man. A burning corpse hit the floor a second later. A gun roared from the smoke. Kincaid grunted and staggered. The spear fell from his hands, but he didn't fall. He drew a gun in either hand and backed unsteadily away, the semi-automatic barking out shots as swiftly as he could send them into the choking smoke down the hall. More Renfields, roasted but functional, came through the smoke, shooting. Dark hounds bounded around them, the naked and bloody shells of dogs, but filled with horrible rage. Behind them I saw Mavra's slender, deadly form lit for the first time. She was wearing the same clothing I'd seen her in the last time, a tattered number from the Renaissance, all of black. Hamlet would have been happy to wear it. I saw her filmy, dead eyes focus on me, and she lifted an axe in one hand. The first two dark hounds reached Kincaid, and he went down under them before I could even cry out. One of the Renfields brought a sledgehammer down on him, while the other simply emptied a handgun into the pile as two more dark hounds threw themselves into it. No! I shouted. Murphy hauled me into the closet and out of the line of fire, just as Mavra threw. Her axe came tumbling end over end down the hall and struck the stone wall at the back of the closet with such force that the head buried itself to the eye in the rock and the wooden handle shattered into splinters. Two of the children, still chained underneath where the axe hit, let out wails of pain and terror as splinters tore at them. Oh, God, Murphy said. Your hand. Oh, God. But she never stopped moving. She shoved me by main force into the back corner of the closet, picked up her gun, leaned into the doorway, and sent eight or nine measured shots down the hall, her face set in grim concentration. Her pale legs were a startling contrast against the black of her Kevlar vest. Harry? she shouted. There's smoke. I can't see anything. But they're at the foot of the stairs. What do we do? I stared at a black box up on the wall near the ceiling, presumably Kincaid's anti-personnel mine. He'd been right. It was set up to open and spew its deadly projectiles diagonally down so that they would bounce and fill both closet and hall with death. Harry? Murphy shouted. I barely had breath enough to answer. Can you hook up the mine again? She looked over her shoulder at me, eyes wide. You mean we can't get out? Can you do it? I barked. She nodded once. Wait for my signal, then arm it and get low. She spun and leapt up onto a wooden chair near the mine, either something she had dragged there or something the bad guys had used, too. She hooked up two alligator clips and held up a third, looking over her shoulder at me, her face pale. The children wept and screamed below her. I dragged myself over to kneel in front of the children, facing down the hallway. I lifted my left hand and stared at it in shock for a second. I always thought I looked good in red and black, but as a rule, I preferred that to be my clothes, not my limbs. My hand was a blackened, twisted claw of badly cooked meat, burned dark wherever it wasn't blood red. My silver shield bracelet dangled beneath it, the charm shields heat-warped, gleaming and bright. I raised my other hand to signal Murphy, 
But then I heard a scream from down the hall, snarling and vicious and hardly human. The smoke swirled and cleared for a second, and I saw Kincaid dragging one leg, his back against the wall. He had one hand clenched hard to his leg and a gun in the other. He shot at a target I couldn't see until the gun started clicking. Now, Murphy! I shouted. My voice thundered down the hall. Kincaid! Bolshevik Muppet! The mercenary's head whipped around toward me. He moved like hamstrung lightning, swift and lurching and grotesque. He dropped the gun, released his leg, and threw himself straight at me with his three unwounded limbs. Again, I raised my shield and prayed that the mine's infrared tripwire functioned. Time slowed. Kincaid flung himself through the doorway. The mine beeped. There was a sharp, snapping click of metal. Kincaid tumbled past me. I leaned aside to let him, and at the same instant brought every scrap of strength I had left to bear on the shield. Lumpy metal spheres, maybe twenty or thirty of them, flew out into the air. I had angled my shield in a simple inclined plane, its base at the closet's doorway, its summit at the back wall of the closet, about four feet off the ground. Several of the spheres hit the shield, but the slope of it sent them rebounding out into the hall. The submunitions exploded in a ripple of thunder and light. Steel balls flew in deadly sprays, rattling off stone walls and tearing into flesh with savage efficiency. The sloped shield flared into azure incandescence, energy from the shrapnel being absorbed and shed as flashbulb-bright bursts of light. The sound was indescribable, almost loud enough to kill all on its own. And then it was over. Silence fell, broken only by the crackling of flames. Nothing moved but drifting smoke. Murphy, Kincaid, the captive children, and I were all huddled together in an unorganized pile of frightened humanity. We all sat there stunned for a moment. Then I said, Come on, we have to get moving before the fire spreads. My voice sounded raw. Let's get these kids out. I might be able to break these chains. Kincaid reached up without speaking and took a key down from a high hook on the opposite wall. He settled back down to sit, leaning against it, and tossed me the key. Or we could do that, I said, and passed the key to Murphy. She started unlocking them. I was too tired to move. My hand didn't hurt, which was a very bad sign, I knew. But I was too tired to care. I just sat there and stared at Kincaid. He had his hand clamped down on his leg again. He was bleeding from it. There was more blood on his belly, on one hand, and his face was positively smothered with it, as if he'd been bobbing for apples in a slaughterhouse. You're hurt, I said. Yup, he replied. Dog, I saw you go down. It got nasty, he confirmed. What happened, I asked. I lived. Your chest is bleeding, I said, and there's blood on your hand. I know that and your face is drenched in it. He lifted an eyebrow and touched his free hand to his chin, then looked at the blood. Oh, that isn't mine. He started fumbling at his belt. I got enough energy together to go to him and help. He pulled a roll of black duct tape from a pouch on his belt, and with sharp, jerking motions, we wound the tape tightly around his wounded leg several times, layering the wound in adhesive, literally taping it closed. He used about a third of the roll, then grunted and tore it off. Then he said, 
You're gonna lose that hand. I was sending it back to the kitchen anyway. I ordered it medium well. Kincaid stared at me for a second, and then started letting out soft, wobbly-sounding laughter, as if it were something he didn't have a lot of practice at. He stood up, wheezing soft laughter, drew another gun and his own machete from his belt, and said, Get them out. I'm gonna dismember whatever's left. Groovy, I said. All that trouble we went to, and you just blew the place up. We could have done this to begin with, Dresden. Murphy got the kids loose, and they started getting away from the wall. One of them, a girl no more than five years old, just collapsed against me, crying. I held on to her for a moment, letting her cry, and said, No, we couldn't have. Kincaid regarded me, his expression unreadable. I thought I saw something wild and bloodthirsty and satisfied in his eyes for just a second. Then he said, Maybe you're right. He vanished into the smoke. Murphy helped me to my feet. She had all the kids join hands, took the hand of the lead child herself, and led us all to the stairs. She bent and scooped up her jeans on the way. There wasn't enough denim left to avoid public indecency, and she dropped them with a sigh. Pink panties, I said, looking down. With little white bows. I wouldn't have guessed that. Murphy looked too tired to glare, but she tried. They really go with the Kevlar and the gun belt, Murph. Shows you're a woman with her priorities straight. She stepped on my foot, smiling. Clear, said Kincaid's voice from the smoke. He appeared again, coughing a little. Found four coffins occupied. One of them was that one-ear guy you told me about. Beheaded them. Vampires are history. Mavra, I asked. He shook his head. That whole end of the hall looks like a chop shop for a black market organ bank. The vampire took that blast from the mine right in the kisser. You'd need her dental records and a jigsaw puzzle all-star to get a positive ID. Kincaid didn't see Mavra flicker into sight. She rose out of the smoke behind him, horribly torn and mangled, badly burned and angry as hell. She was missing her lower jaw, half of an arm, a basketball-sized section of lower abdomen, and one of her legs was attached by only a scrap of flesh and her black tights. For all of that, she moved no less swiftly, and her eyes burned with dead fire. Kincaid saw the look on my face. He dropped flat. I whipped the stupid little paintball gun out of my duster and emptied it at Mavra. May lightning strike me dead if the damn thing didn't work like a charm. Hell, better than most charms, and I'm the guy who should know. The shots poured out almost as swiftly as from Kincaid's deadly little machine guns, and they splattered into Mavra, sizzling viciously. Silver fire immediately began chewing at her flesh wherever the paintball struck and broke. It ripped into her, and it happened fast, as if some hyperkinetic gourmet were taking a melon baller to her flesh. Mavra let out a shocked and dusty shriek. The holy water and garlic paintballs put a hole as wide as a three-liter bottle of Coke all the way through her. I could see the glow of fire in the pall of smoke behind her. She staggered and fell to her knees. Murphy drew the machete from her belt and threw it underhand. Kincaid caught it as he turned back to Mavra and took her head off at the base of her neck. The head went one way. The body went straight down. There was no thrashing, no howling or spurting ichor, 
No gales of magical wind or sudden clouds of dust. Mavra's remains simply thumped to the ground, nothing but a withered cadaver once more. I looked from Mavra's corpse to the paintball gun, impressed. Kincaid, can I keep this? Sure, he said. I'll add it to the bill. He stood up slowly, looking at the destruction. He shook his head. Then he joined us as we went up the stairs. Even saying it is tough to believe. What is, I asked, your shield? And that bit with all the wind and fire, especially with your hand like that. He glanced at me, something like caution in his expression. I've never seen a wizard cut loose before. What the hell? It wouldn't hurt to encourage the mercenary to be wary of me. I stopped and leaned on my staff. The runes still glowed with a sullen fire, though it was slowly fading. Tiny white wisps of wood smoke curled up from it, sharp in my nose. It hadn't ever done that before, but there was no reason to mention that for the time being. I looked straight at him until it was obvious that he was refusing to meet my eyes. Then I said in a quiet, gentle voice, you still haven't. I walked on out, leaving him to stare after me. I didn't think for a second that he would allow what he'd seen to scare him out of killing me if I didn't pay him, but it might scare him enough to make him more cautious about taking that option. Every little bit helps. Before we got out of the shelter, I took off my duster and draped it onto Murphy's shoulders. It enveloped her entirely, its hem dragging the ground, covering her legs. She gave me a grateful look just as Ebenezer appeared in the doorway. The old man looked at the kids, then at my hand, and drew in a sharp breath. You all right to walk yourself out? he asked. So far, we need to get these kids and ourselves the hell away from here. Fine, he said. Where? We'll take the kids to Father Forthill at St. Mary of the Angels, I said. He'll have a good idea of what can be done to help them. Ebenezer nodded. I know him by reputation. Good man. We went outside and started loading kids into Ebenezer's old Ford truck. The old man had a gun rack at the back of the cab, his thick old staff in the bottom rack, his old greener shotgun in the top one. He lifted the kids into the back one by one, where he had them lie down on a thick old thermal blanket and covered them with a second one. Kincaid came out of the shelter carrying a contractor's heavy garbage bag, the smoke grown thicker behind him. The bag was half full. He threw it over one shoulder, then turned to me and said, Taking care of details. As I see it, the contract is done. You satisfied with that? Yeah, I said. Nice working with you. Thank you. Kincaid shook his head. The money is how you thank me. Yeah, uh, I said. About that. It's Saturday, and I'm going to have to talk to someone at the bank. He stepped closer to me and handed me a white business card. It had a number printed on it in gold lettering. There was another number written in ink that made the balance currently in my checking account look extremely small. Nothing else. My Swiss account, he explained. And I'm in no hurry. Have it there by Tuesday and we'll be square. He got in the van and left. Tuesday. Crap. Ebenezer watched the white van pull out, then helped Murphy get me into the truck. I sat in the middle, my legs over on Murphy's side of the cab. She had a first aid kit in her hands, and as we rode along, she covered my burned hand lightly with gauze, entirely silent. Ebenezer drove off cautiously. 
We heard sirens start up when we were a couple of blocks away. The kids to the church, he said. Then where? My place, I said. I'll get patched up for round two. Round two? Ebenezer asked. Yeah, I said. If I don't do something, a ritual entropy curse is going to head my way before midnight. How can I help? he asked. I looked steadily at him. We'll have to talk about it. He squinted out ahead of us and kept his emotions off of his face. Hoss, you're too involved. You do too much. You take on way too damn much. There's a bright side, though, I said. Oh? Uh-huh. If I buy it tonight, at least I won't have to figure out how to pay Kincaid before he kills me. Chapter 34 Ebenezer drove, and I felt myself float off into a pensive haze. Well, that wasn't exactly true. It was more of a pence-less haze, but I didn't complain about it. My mouth didn't want to work, and on some level I knew that numb, floating shock was better than searing agony. Somewhere in the background, Murphy and Ebenezer talked enough to work out details, and we must have dropped the kids off with Father Fortill, because when I finally got out of the truck, the back was empty of children. Murphy, I said, frowning. I had a thought. If there's an APB out for me, maybe we shouldn't go back to my place. Harry, she said, we've been here for two hours. You're sitting on your couch. I looked around. She was right. The fireplace was going, with Mr. in his favorite spot by the mantel, and the notch-eared puppy was lying on the couch next to me, using my leg as a pillow. I tasted scotch in my mouth, one of Ebenezer's own brews, but I didn't remember drinking it. Man, I must have been in worse shape than I thought. So I am, I said, but that doesn't make my concerns any less valid. Murphy had hung my coat up on its hook by the door and was wearing a pair of my knee-length knit shorts. They fell to halfway down her calf, and she'd had to tie a big knot in the front to keep them on, but at least she wasn't walking around in her panties. Damn it. I don't think so, she said. I've talked to Stallings. He said there's an APB for someone matching your description, but your name isn't attached to it, only that the suspect is wanted for questioning, and maybe using the alias Larry or Barry. There were no prints on the weapon, but it was registered to the witness. She shook her head. I don't know how that happened. I'd say you got lucky, but I know better, and you'd make some wise-ass remark about it. I let out a broken little laugh. <laughs> yeah, I said. Hell's bells. Trixie Vixen has got to be the most vacuous, conceited, small-minded, petty, and self-absorbed baddie I've ever snooped out. That's what happened. What? Murphy asked. My name, I said, still wheezing laughter. She never got it straight. The woman got my freaking name wrong. I don't think she bothers to keep very close track of other people's existence if it doesn't profit her. Murphy arched an eyebrow. But there were other people there, weren't there? Someone must have known your name. I nodded. Arturo for sure, probably Joan, but everyone else only knew my first name. And someone had to wipe any of your prints from the gun. They're covering for you, Murphy said. I pursed my lips, surprised. Not so much that Arturo and his people had done it, but because of my reaction to the news. It made a warm spot somewhere inside me that felt almost completely unfamiliar. They are, I said. 
God knows why, but they are. Harry, you saved the lives of some of their people, she shook her head. In the business they're in, I doubt Chicago's finest are exactly making them feel like valued members of the community. That kind of isolation brings people together, and you help them. Makes you one of them when trouble comes. Makes me family, I said. She smiled a little and nodded. So you know who done it? Trixie, I said. Probably two others. My sense is that it's the ex-Mrs. Genosa Club, but that's just a hunch. And I think they had help. Why do you say that? Because Trixie was getting instructions from someone on the phone when she was holding a gun on me, I said. And they've been invoking that curse with a ritual. Unless someone's actually got some talent, it takes two or three people to raise the energy that's needed. And let's face it, three witches cackling over a cauldron somewhere is pretty much stereotyped into the public awareness. Macbeth, Murphy said. Yeah, and that movie with Jack Nicholson as the devil. Can I ask you something? Sure. You told me about rituals once. The cosmic vending machine, right? An outside power offers to give you something if you fulfill a specific sequence of events. Yeah. Murphy shook her head. Scary. People can just do a dance and someone dies? Regular people, I mean? What happens if someone publishes a book? Someone has, I said. Plenty of times. The White Council has pushed it to happen a couple of times. Like with the Necronomicon. It's a reasonably good way to make certain the ritual in question isn't going to work. She frowned. I don't get it. Why? Supply and demand, I said. There are limits to what outside forces can deliver to the mortal world. Think of the incoming power as water flowing through a pipeline. If a couple of people are using a rite once every couple of weeks or every few years, there's no problem pumping in enough magic to make it work. But if 50,000 people are trying to use the rite all at once, there isn't enough power in any one place to make it happen. It just comes out as a little dribble that tastes bad and smells funny. Murphy nodded, following me. So people who have access to rituals don't want to share them? Exactly. And a book of dark rituals is not something your average vacuous princess of porn picks up at the mall. So she had help. Yeah, I said, frowning. And that last run on the curse had a professional behind it. Why do you say that? It was a hell of a lot faster, for one thing, and deadlier. It hit so quick I didn't have time to redirect it away from the victim, even though I knew it was coming. It was stronger, too. A lot stronger like someone who knew the business had taken the trouble to focus or amplify it somehow. What can do that? Murphy asked. Coordination between talented wizards, I said. Uh, sometimes you can use certain articles and materials to amplify magic. They're usually expensive as hell. Sometimes special locations can help, places like Stonehenge, or certain positions of stars on a given night of the year. Then there's the old standby. What's that? Murphy asked. Blood, I said. The destruction of life, the sacrifice of animals, or people. Murphy shivered. And you think they're coming after you next? Yeah, I said. I'm in the way. They have to if they want to get away clean. Get away with their big old fund intact? Yeah, I said. Seems pretty extreme for a greed killing, Murphy said. I've got nothing against greed as a motivator, but damn. It's like some people just never grasp the idea that other people actually exist. Yeah, 
I said with a sigh. I guess this time there just happened to be three of them standing in the same place. Huh, Murphy said. God only knows what kind of unholy bad luck got three ex-wives together. I mean, what are the odds, you know? I sat up straight. Murphy had put her finger on it. Stars and stones, you're right. How could I have missed that? You've been a little busy, Murphy guessed. I felt my heart speed up. It beat with a dull pressure on my hand. It wasn't pain yet, but it was coming. Okay, let's think here. Arturo didn't announce that he was getting married again. I mean, I only found out because someone who knows him made a sharp guess. And I doubt the ex-wives knew about it firsthand. In fact, I'd be willing to bet they were informed of the fact by a third party. Why? Murphy asked. Because if you want to work magic on someone, you've got to believe in it. You've got to want it. Otherwise it just fizzles. That means that they want someone dead. Genuinely want it. Because when they found out, it was a nasty surprise, Murphy said. Maybe whoever told them tilted things even further before the ex-wives found out. Made it hit them really hard. Make them really mad. I don't know, Harry. You need a fourth party to want Arturo's new squeeze next for that to hold water. Yeah, I agreed. Then I felt my eyes widen. Unless that wasn't what they wanted at all. Murph, I don't think this is about money. I don't understand. Genosa's in love, I said. I felt myself rise to my feet. Son of a bitch! It was right there in front of me the whole time. Murphy frowned and rose with me, putting her hand on my good arm. Harry, you need to sit back down, all right? You're hurt. You need to sit down until Ebenezer gets back. What? Ebenezer. He thinks he can do something for your hand, but he had to pick up something first. Oh, I said. My head spun a little. She tugged at my arm and I sat back down. But that's it. What's it? Trixie and the other Stregas are just weapons for someone else. Genosa is in love. That's why he didn't react to Lara like everyone else. They can't touch him. That's what this is all about. Murphy frowned. What do you mean? Who is using them as weapons? The White Court, I said. Lord Wraith in the White Court. It's no coincidence that he and his second-in-command are in Chicago this weekend. What does Genosa's being in love have to do with anything? The White Court can control people. I mean, they seduce them, get close, and before long they can sink in the psychic hooks. They can make slaves of the people they feed on and make them like it to boot. That's the source of their power. Murphy arched an eyebrow. But not if someone is in love? I laughed weakly. Yeah, they just said it out loud. It was an internal matter. Hell, it was practically the first thing she said about him, that Arturo was always falling in love. What who said? Joan, I said. Plain old practical flannel-wearing donut-scarfing Joan. And Lara the Wonder Slut. Not in that order. I'm sure of it. Murphy scowled. Egad, Holmes, you've got to provide me with some context if you want me to understand. Okay, okay, I said. Here's the setup, all right? Wraith is the leader of the White Court, but over the past several years, he's been losing face. His personal power base is slowly eroding. Why? Thomas, mainly, I said. 
Wraith apparently murders his sons before they start getting ideas of knocking him off and taking over the family business. He sent Thomas to get killed at the Vampire Masquerade Ball, but Thomas hooked up with Michael and me and came out of it alive. Then Wraith set Thomas up again last year at the duel with Ortega, but Thomas got through that one, too. And from what I've deduced, Papa Wraith isn't putting the fear of himself into his own children very well anymore. What's that got to do with Genosa? she asked. Genosa publicly defied Wraith's authority, I said. Arturo told me that someone had been slowly buying up the adult movie companies, manipulating things from behind the scenes. Trace the money trail back, and I'd bet you dollars to donuts that you'll find that it's Wraith and that he owns Silverlight. By leaving Silverlight Studios and going off to break stereotypes by doing his own movies, Genosa was defying Wraith's authority in a very public way. So you're saying that the White Court controls the erotica industry? Or at least a bunch of it, I confirmed. Think about it. They can influence people's opinions of all kinds of things. What physical beauty is, what sex is, how one should react to temptation, what is acceptable behavior in intimate relationships. My God, Murph. It's like training deer to come to a particular feeding point to make stalking and killing them easier. Her mouth fell open for a moment. God, that's... that's sort of terrifying. That's huge. And insidious, I said. I never even thought about something like that happening. Or maybe it's fairer to say that it's been happening. Maybe Wraith was just taking over the business from some other player in the white court. So, when Genosa thumbed his nose at Silverlight, it made Lord Wraith look even weaker. Yeah, I said. A mere human defying the white king. And Wraith couldn't send Lara to control him either, because Genosa is in love. Meaning? The white court can't touch someone who is in love, I said. Real love. If they try to feed on them, it causes them physical agony. It's their holy water, I guess you could say. Their silver bullet. They're terrified of it. Murphy's eyes brightened, and she nodded. Wraith wasn't able to control Genosa, so he had to find a way to torpedo the guy instead, or lose face. And be torn from his position of power, exactly. Why not just kill Genosa? I shook my head. The White Court seems to pride itself on elegance when it comes to power games. Thomas told me that when the Whites go to war with one another, they do it through indirect means, cat's paws. The more untraceable, the better. They believe that intelligence and manipulation are more important than mere strength. If Wraith just popped a cap in Arturo, it would have been still another loss of face. So? So he finds someone he can control, Murphy said. He sets them up to find out that the new wife is a danger to their positions, and he does it in the worst possible way, to make them readier to take action. He even hands them the murder weapon, a big, nasty, dark ritual. He's not sure who it is, so he tells them to get rid of whoever Genosa is secretly engaged to. They've got a means, a motive, and an opportunity. Even in magical circles, I'll bet no one's going to be able to easily prove it was Wraith who was responsible for the death of the woman Arturo was engaged to. And in love with, I said. For Lord Wraith, it's a win-win situation. If they kill the fiancé, it will destabilize Genosa and hamper his ability to produce films. Hell, maybe Wraith wanted to wait until he fell into a depression afterward 
and then send one of the ex-wives after a while to offer comfort, seduce him, and leave him vulnerable to Lara's control. If they don't manage to kill the fiancé, they might still create enough havoc and confusion to derail Genosa's work. And even if someone on the spooky end of the block figures out who done it, Wraith has it set up so that they can't be traced back to him. Yeah, I said. Meanwhile, Arturo is back in the fold, and Wraith has reconsolidated his power base. End of problem. But not if you interfere and stop him. Not if I interfere and stop him, I agreed. So, once Wraith gets word that I'm sticking my nose into his business, he brings in Lara to keep an eye on me and take me out if she can. Or just take you, Murphy said. If this guy is a schemer, maybe he thought it would be great to have this Lara get hooks into you. The puppy stirred, disturbed. I shivered and petted him. Ugh, I said. But it didn't work, and I'm close to blowing the whole thing wide open. Now he'll have to take a swing at me and get me out of the picture. Murphy made a growling sound. Gutless bastard, going through other people like that. It's smart, I said. If he really has been weakened, he wouldn't want to take on anyone from the White Council directly. Only a fool goes toe-to-toe with a stronger enemy. That's why Thomas did the same thing as his father, recruiting me to go up against him. Murphy whistled. You're right. How the hell did you get this bag of snakes? Clean living, I said. You should tell Thomas to get lost, Murphy said. Can't. Why not? I looked at her in silence. Her eyes widened. She understood. It's him. He's family. Half-brother, I said. Our mother used to hang around with Lord Rafe. She nodded. So what are you going to do? Survive. I mean about Thomas. I'll burn that bridge when I come to it. Fair enough, Murphy said. But what's your next move? Go to Thomas, I said. Make him help. I looked down at my bandaged hand. I need a car and a driver. Done, said Murphy. I frowned, thinking, and I might need something else from you tonight, something tough. What? I told her. She stared silently past me for a moment and then said, God, Harry. I know, I hate to ask it, but it's our only shot. I don't think we can win this one with simple firepower. She shivered. Okay. You sure? You don't have to do it. I'm with you, she said. Thank you, Karen. She gave me a small smile. At least this way I feel like I get to do something to help. Don't be silly, I said. The image of you gunfighting in your panties is going to boost my morale for years. She kicked my leg gently with hers, but her smile was somewhat wooden. She looked down to focus on the puppy, who promptly rolled over on his back, chewing at her fingers. You okay? I asked. You got kind of quiet. I'm fine, she said. Mostly. It's just... Just? She shook her head. It's been sort of a stressful day for me, relationship-wise. I know what you mean, I thought. I mean, first that asshole Rich and Lisa, and... She glanced at me, her cheeks pink. And this thing with Kincaid. You mean him taking your pants off? She rolled her eyes. Yeah, it's been... 
Well, it's been a really, really long time since a good-looking man took my pants off. I sort of forgot how much I enjoyed it. I mean, I know this is just a reaction to the danger and adrenaline and so on, but still, I've never reacted that strongly to a simple touch. Oh, I said. She sighed. Well, you asked. It's got me a little distracted, that's all. Just so you know, I said, I don't think he's human. I think he's pretty major bad news. Yeah, Murphy said, her voice annoyed. It's never the nice guys who get a girl worked up. Apparently not. Oh, I said again. I'll call a cab, Murphy said. Get some clothes and my bike. The car's still back at the park, and there might still be family there. Give me about an hour, and I'll be ready to take you where you need to go, if you're able. I have to be, I said. Murphy called the cab, and just as it got there, Ebenezer opened the door, carrying a brown paper grocery sack. I looked up at him, feeling a sudden blend of emotions. Relief, affection, suspicion, disappointment, betrayal. It was a mess. He saw the look. He stopped in the doorway and said, Hoss, how's the hand? Starting to feel things again, I said. But I figure I'll pass out before it comes all the way back. Uh, might be able to help a little, if you want me to. Let's talk about that. Murphy had pretty obviously picked up on the tension between us back at the shelter. She kept her tone and expression neutral and said, My cab's here, Harry. See you in an hour. Thanks, Murph, I said. Pleasure to meet you, Miss Murphy, Ebenezer said. He corrected himself almost instantly. Lieutenant Murphy. She almost smiled. Then she gave me a look, as if to ask me if it was all right to leave me with the old man. I nodded, and she left. Close the door, I told Ebenezer. He did, and turned to face me. So? What do you want me to tell you? The truth, I said. I want the truth. No, you don't, Ebenezer said. Or at least not now. Harry, you have to trust me on this one. No, I don't, I responded. My voice sounded rough and raw. I've trusted you for years, completely. I've built up some credit. You owe me. Ebenezer looked away. I want answers. I want the truth. It will hurt, he said. The truth does that sometimes. I don't care. I do, he said. Boy, there is no one, no one I would hate to hurt as much as you. And this is too much to lay on your shoulders, especially right now. It could get you killed, Harry. That isn't your decision to make, I said quietly. It surprised me how calm I sounded. I want the truth. Give it to me. Or get out of my home and never come back. Frustration. Even true anger flickered across the old man's face. He took a deep breath, then nodded. He put the grocery sack down on my coffee table and folded his arms, facing my fireplace. The lines on his face looked deeper. His eyes focused into the fire, or through it, and they were hard, somehow frightening. All right, he said. Ask. I'll answer. But this could change things for you, Harry. It could change the way you think and feel. About what? About yourself. About me. About the White Council. 
about everything. I can take it. Ebenezer nodded. All right, Hoss. Don't say I didn't warn you. Chapter 35 Let's start simple, I said. How do you know Kincaid? He blew out a breath, cheeks puffing out. <sighs> He's in the trade. The trade? Yes. Ebenezer sat down on the other end of the couch. The puppy got up on wobbling legs and snuffled over to examine him. His tail started wagging. Ebenezer gave the little dog a brief smile and scratched his ears. Most of the mage's supernatural powers have someone for that kind of work. Ortega was the Red Courts, for example. Kincaid and I are contemporaries, of a sort. You're assassins, I said. He didn't deny it. Didn't look like you liked him much, I said. There are proprieties between us, Ebenezer said. A measure of professional courtesy and respect. Boundaries. Kincaid crossed them about a century ago in Istanbul. He's not human? Ebenezer shook his head. Then what is he? There are people walking around who carry the blood of the never-never in them, Ebenezer said. Changelings, for one, those who are half-she. The fairies aren't the only ones who can breed with humanity, though, and the scions of such unions can have a lot of power. Their offspring are usually malformed, freakish, often insane, but sometimes the child looks human. Like Kincaid, Ebenezer nodded. He's older than I am. When I met him, I still had hair, and he had been serving the creature for centuries. What creature? I asked. The creature, Ebenezer said. Another half-mortal like Kincaid. Vlad Dracul. I blinked. Vlad Tepesh? Dracula? Ebenezer shook his head. Dracula was the son of Dracul, and pretty pale and skinny by comparison. Went to the Black Court as a kind of teenage rebellion. The original creature is, well, formidable, dangerous, cruel. And Kincaid was his right arm for centuries. He was known as the Hound of Hell, or just the Hell Hound. And he's afraid of you, I said, my voice bitter. Blackstaff McCoy. I guess that's your working name? Something like that. The name is a long story. Get started, then, I said. He nodded, absently rubbing the puppy behind the ears. Ever since the founding of the White Council, ever since the first wizards gathered to lay down the laws of magic, there has been someone interested in tearing it apart, he said. The vampires, for one. The fairies have all been at odds with us at one time or another. And there have always been wizards who thought the world would be a nicer place without the council in it. Gee, I said, I just can't figure out why any wizard would think that. Ebenezer's voice lashed out, harsh and cold. You don't know what you're talking about, boy. You don't know what you're saying. Within my own lifetime, there have been times and places where even speaking those words could have been worth your life. Gosh, I'd hate for my life to be in jeopardy. Why did he call you Blackstaff? I asked, my voice hardening. An intuition hit me. It's not a nickname, I said. Is it? It's a title. A title, he said. 
a solution. At times, the White Council found itself bound by its own laws, while its enemies had no such constraints. So, an office was created, a position within the Council, a mark of status. One wizard, and only one, was given the freedom to choose when the laws had been perverted and turned as weapons against us. I stared at him for a moment and then said, After all that you taught me about magic, that it came from life, that it was a force that came from the deepest desires of the heart, that we have a responsibility to use it wisely, hell, to be wise and kind and honorable, to make sure that the power gets used wisely. You taught me all of that. And now you're telling me that it doesn't mean anything. That the whole time you were standing there with a license to kill. The lines in the old man's face looked hard and bitter. He nodded. To kill. To enthrall. To invade the thoughts of another mortal. To seek knowledge and power from beyond the outer gates. To transform others to reach beyond the borders of life, to swim against the currents of time. You're the White Council's wet works man, I said. For all their prattle about the just and wise use of magic, when the wisdom and justice of the laws of magic get inconvenient, they have an assassin. You do that for them. He said nothing. You kill people. Yes. Ebenezer's face looked like something carved in stone, and his voice was quietly harsh. When there is no choice, when lives are at stake, when the lack of action would mean... He cut himself off, jaw working. I didn't want it. I still don't. But when I have to, I act. Like at Casa Verde, I said. You hit Ortega's stronghold when he escaped our duel. Yes, he said, still remote. Ortega killed more of the White Council than any enemy in our history during the attack at Archangel. His voice faltered for a moment. He killed Simon, my friend. And he came here and tried to kill you, Hoss. And he was coming back here to finish the job as soon as he recovered. So I hit Casaverde, killed him and almost two hundred of his personal retainers. And I killed nearly a hundred people there in the house with them. Servants, followers, food. I felt sick. You told me it would be on the news. I thought maybe it was the council, or that you'd done it without killing anyone but vampires. I had time to think about it later, but I wanted to believe you'd done what was right. There's what's right, the old man said, and then there's what's necessary. They ain't always the same. Casa Verde wasn't the only necessary thing you did, I said. Was it? Casa Verde, Ebenezer said, his voice shaking. Tunguska, New Madrid, Krakatoa. A dozen more. God help me, a dozen more at least. I stared at him for a long moment. Then I said, You told me the council assigned me to live with you because they wanted to annoy you. But that wasn't it. 
because you don't send a potentially dangerous criminal element to live with your hatchet man if you want to rehabilitate him. He nodded. My orders were to observe you and kill you if you showed the least bit of rebelliousness. Kill me, I rubbed at my eyes. The pounding in my hand grew worse. As I remember, I got rebellious with you more than once. You did, he said. Then why didn't you kill me? Jehoshaphat, boy. What's the point of having a license to ignore the will of the council if you aren't going to use it? He shook his head, a tired smile briefly appearing on his mouth. It wasn't your fault you got raised by that son of a bitch, Demon. You were a dumb kid, you were angry and afraid, and your magic was strong as hell. But that didn't mean you needed killing. They gave the judgment to me, I used it. They aren't happy with how I used it, but I did. I stared at him. There's something else you aren't telling me. He was silent for a minute, then two, and a while later he said, The council knew that you were the son of Margaret Le Fay. They knew that she was one of the wizards who had turned the council's own laws against it. She was guilty of violating the first law, among others, and she had unsavory associations with various entities of dubious reputation. The wardens were under orders to arrest her on sight. She'd have been tried and executed in moments when she was brought before the council. I was told she died in childbirth, I said. She did, Ebenezer confirmed. I don't know why, but for some reason she turned away from her previous associates, including Justin Demon. After that, nowhere was safe for her. She ran, from her former allies and from the wardens for perhaps two years, and she ran from me. I had my orders regarding her as well. I stared at him in pained fascination. What happened? She met your father. A man, a mortal, without powers, without influence, without resources, but a man with a good soul, like few I have ever seen. I believe that she fell in love with him, but on the night you were born, one of her former allies found her and exacted his vengeance for her desertion. He looked up at me directly and said, He used an entropy curse, a ritual entropy curse. Shock paralyzed me for a moment. Then I said, Lord Wraith, yes, he killed my mother. He did, Ebenezer confirmed. God, you're, you're sure? He's a snake, Ebenezer said, but I'm as sure as I can be. The pounding spread up my arm, and the room pulsed brighter and dimmer in time with it. My mother. He was standing three feet from me. He killed my mother. A child's pain. The emptiness in my life, the shape of my unknown mother, my unfortunate father, swelled and screamed in rage. The source of that pain, or part of it, had finally been revealed to me. And in that moment, had I known where to strike, I would have eagerly embraced murder. Nothing mattered but exacting retribution. Nothing mattered but taking righteous vengeance for the death of a child's mother. My mother. I started shaking, 
and I knew that my sanity was buckling under the pressure. Hoss, Ebenezer said. Easy, boy. Kill him, I whispered. I'll kill him. No, Ebenezer said. You've got to breathe, boy. Think. I started gathering power. Kill him. Kill him. Everything. All of it. Nothing left. Harry, Ebenezer snapped. Harry, let go. You can't handle that kind of power. You'll kill yourself if you try. I didn't care about that either. The power felt too good, too strong. I wanted it. I wanted Wraith to pay. I wanted him to suffer, screaming, and then die for what he had done to me. And I was strong enough to make it happen. I had the power and the resolve to bring such a tide of magic against him that he would be utterly destroyed. I would lay him low and make him howl for mercy before I tore him apart. He deserved nothing less. And then fire blossomed in my hand again, so sudden and sharp that my back convulsed into an agonized arch and I fell to the floor. I couldn't scream. The pain washed my fury away like dandelions before a flash flood. I looked around wildly and saw the old man's broad, calloused hand clamp down over my burned, lightly bandaged flesh with bruising strength. When he saw my eyes, he released my hand. His expression sickened. I curled up for a minute while my pounding heart telegraphed consecutive tidal waves of agony through me. It was several minutes before I could master the pain and sit slowly up again. I'm sorry, Ebenezer whispered. Harry, I can't let you indulge your rage. You'll kill yourself. I'll take him with me, I got out between gritted teeth. Ebenezer let out a bitter laugh. No, you won't, Hoss. How do you know? I've tried, he said, three times and I didn't even get close. And you think your mother went without spending her death curse on her murderer? The creature who had enslaved her? Might as well ask if a fish remembered to swim. I blinked at him. What do you mean? He's protected, he said quietly. Magic just slides off him. Even a death curse? Useless, he said bitterly. Wraith is protected by something big. Maybe... A big damn demon, maybe even some old god. He can't be touched with magic. Is that even possible? I asked. Aye, the old man said. I don't know how, but it is. Does a lot to explain how he got to become the White King. I don't believe it, I said quietly. She'd been close to him. She must have known he was protected. She was strong enough to make the White Council afraid of her. She wouldn't have spent her curse for nothing. She threw it. She wasted it. So now my mother is incompetent as well as evil, I said. I never said that. What do you know about her, I said. I had my right hand clamped around my left wrist, hoping to distract myself from the pain. How would you know? Did she tell you? Were you there with her? He looked down at the floor, his face pale. No. Then how the hell do you know, I demanded. His words came out in a harsh croak. Because I knew her, Hoss. I knew her almost better than she knew herself. The fire crackled. How? I whispered. 
He drew his hand back from the puppy. She was my apprentice. I was her teacher, her mentor. She was my responsibility. You taught her? I failed her. He chewed on his lip. Harry, when Maggie was coming into her power, I made her life a living hell. She was barely more than a child, but I rode herd on her night and day. I pushed her to learn, to excel, but I was too close, too involved, and she resented it. She ran off as soon as she could get away with it, started taking up with bad sorts out of sheer rebellion. She made a couple of bad decisions, and, and then it was too late for her to go back. He sighed. You're so much like her. I knew it when they sent you to me. I knew it the minute I saw you. I didn't want to repeat my mistakes with you. I wanted you to have breathing space, to make up your own mind about what kind of person you would be. He shook his head. The hardest lesson a wizard has to learn is that even with so much power, there are some things you can't control, no matter how much you want to. I just stared at him. You're an assassin, a murderer. You knew about what happened to my mother. You knew her, and you never told me. Good God, Ebenezer, how could you do that to me? Why didn't you tell me? I'm only human, Hoss. I did what I thought was best for you at the time. I trusted you, I said. Do you know how much that means to me? Yes, he said. I never did it with the intention of hurting you. But it's done. And I wouldn't choose to do it any differently if it happened again. He moved, got the sack, and hunkered down by me so that he could rest my forearm over one knee and examine the burned hand. Then he reached into the bag and drew out a long strand of string hung with some kind of white stone. Let's see to your hand. I think I can get the circulation restored, at least a little. Maybe enough to save the hand. And I can stop the pain for a day or two. You'll still have to get to a doctor, but this should tide you over if you're expecting trouble tonight. It didn't take him long, and I tried to sort through my thoughts. They were buried under a storm of raw emotions, all of them ugly. I lost track of time again for a minute. When I looked up, my hand didn't hurt, and it seemed a little less withered beneath the white bandages. A string of white stones had been tied around my wrist. Even as I watched, one of them yellowed and began to slowly darken. The stones will absorb the pain for a while. They'll crumble one at a time, so you'll know when they stop working. He looked up to my face. Do you want my help tonight? An hour ago, it wouldn't even have been a question. I'd have been more than glad to have Ebenezer next to me in a fight. But the old man had been right. The truth hurt. The truth burned. My thoughts and feelings boiled in a blistering, dangerous tumult in my chest. I didn't want to admit what was at the core of that turmoil, but denying it wouldn't make it any less true. Ebenezer had lied to me. From day one. And if he'd been lying to me, what else had he lied about? I'd built my whole stupid life on a few simple beliefs. 
that I had a responsibility to use my power to help people, that it was worth risking my own life and safety to defend others. Beliefs I had taken as my own, primarily because of the old man's influence. But he hadn't been what I thought he was. Ebenezer wasn't a paragon of wizardly virtue. If anything, he was a precautionary tale. He had seemed to talk a good game, but underneath that surface, he'd been as cold and as vicious as any of the cowardly bastards in the council, whom I despised. Maybe he'd never claimed to be a shining example— Maybe I just needed someone to admire, to believe in. Maybe I'd been the stupid one, putting my faith in the wrong place. But none of that changed the fact that Ebenezer had hidden things from me, that he'd lied. That made it simple. No, I whispered. I don't want you there. I don't know you. I never did. But you'd fight beside someone like the Hellhound. Kincaid's a killer for hire. He never pretended he was anything else. The old man exhaled slowly and said, I reckon that ain't unfair. Thank you for your help, but I've got things to do. You should go. He rose, picked up the paper bag, and said, I'm still there for you, Hoss. If you change you, I felt my teeth clench. I said, get out. He blinked his eyes a few times and whispered, A hard lesson. The hardest. Then he left. I refused to watch him go. Chapter 36 I sat in the silence of the old man's departure and felt a lot of things. I felt tired. I felt afraid. And I felt alone. The puppy sat up and displayed some of the wisdom and compassion of his kind. He wobbled carefully over to me, scrambled up onto my lap, and started licking the bottom of my chin. I petted his soft baby fur, and it gave me an unexpected sense of comfort. Sure, he was tiny, and sure, he was just a dog, but he was warm and loving and a brave little beast, and he liked me. He kept on giving me puppy kisses, tail wagging, until I finally smiled at him and roughed up his fur with one hand. Mister wasn't about to let a mere dog outdo him. The hefty Tom promptly descended from his perch on my bookshelf and started rubbing himself back and forth under my hand until I paid attention to him, too. I guess you aren't nothing but trouble, I told the dog. But I already have a furry companion, right, mister? Mr. blinked at me with an enigmatic cat expression, batted the puppy off the couch and onto the floor, and promptly lost interest in me. Mr. flowed back down onto the floor, where the puppy rolled to his feet, tail wagging ferociously, and began to romp clumsily around the cat, thrilled with the game. Mr. flicked his ears with disdain and went back up onto his bookshelf. I laughed. I couldn't help it. The world might be vicious and treacherous and deadly, but it couldn't kill laughter. Laughter, like love, has power to survive the worst things life has to offer, and to do it with style. It got me moving. I dressed for trouble, black fatigue pants, a heavy wool shirt of deep red, black combat boots. I put on my gun belt with one hand, clipped my sword cane to the belt, and covered it with my duster. 
I made sure I had my mother's amulet and my shield bracelet, sat down, and called Thomas's cell phone. The phone got about half of a ring out before someone picked it up, and a girl's frightened voice asked, Tommy? Inari? I asked. Is that you? It's me, she confirmed. This is Harry, isn't it? For another few hours, anyway, I said. May I speak to Thomas, please? No, Inari said. It sounded like she had been crying. I was hoping this was him. I think he's in trouble. I frowned. What kind of trouble? I saw one of my father's men, she said. I think he had a gun. He made Thomas drop his phone in the parking lot and get into the car. I didn't know what I should do. Easy, easy, I said. Where was he taken from? The studio, she said, her voice miserable. He gave me a ride here when we heard about the shooting. I'm here now. Is Lara there? I asked. Yes, she's right here. Put her on, please. Okay, Inari said. The phone rustled. A moment later, Lara's voice glided out of the phone and into my ear. Hello, Harry. Lara, I know your father is behind the curse on Arturo, along with Arturo's wives. I know they've been gunning for his fiancée so that Wraith can get Arturo back under his control, and I have a question for you. Oh, she said. Yeah. Where is Thomas? It excites me when a man is so subtle, she said, so debonair. Better brace yourself, then, I said. I want him in one piece. I'm willing to kill anyone who gets in the way, and I'm willing to pay you to help me. Really? Lara said. I heard her murmur something, presumably to Inari. She waited a moment. I heard a door close, and the tone of her voice changed subtly, becoming businesslike. I am willing to hear you out. And I'm willing to give you House Wraith and the White Court with it. Shocked silence followed. Then she said, And how would you manage such a thing? I remove your father from power. You take over. How vague. The situation isn't a simple one, she said, but I could hear a throbbing note of excitement in her voice. The other houses of the White Court follow House Wraith because they fear and respect my father. It seems unlikely that they would transfer that respect to me. Unlikely, not impossible. I think it can be done. She made a slow, low purring sound. Do you? And what would you expect from me in return? If my father has decided to remove Thomas, I am hardly capable of stopping him. You won't need to. Just take me to him. I'll get Thomas myself. After which, my father will be so impressed with your diplomatic skills that he cedes the house to me? Something like that, I said. Get me there. Then all you have to do is watch from the sidelines while Cat's Paw Dresden handles your father. Hmm, she said. That would certainly raise my status among the lords of the court. To arrange for a usurpation isn't so unusual, but very few manage to have good seats to it as well. A first-hand view of it would be a grace note few have attained. Plus, if you were standing right there and things went badly for me, you'd be in a good spot to backstab me and keep your father's goodwill. Of course, she said, without a trace of shame. You understand me rather well, wizard. Oh, there's one other thing I want. Yes, she asked. Leave the kid alone. Don't push her. Don't pressure her. You come clean with Inari. 
You tell her the deal with her bloodline, and you let her make up her own mind when it comes to her future. She waited for a beat, and then said, That's all? That's all. She purred again. My, I am not yet sure if you are truly that formidable or simply a vast and mighty fool. But for the time being, I am finding you an extremely exciting man. All the girls tell me that. She laughed. Let us assume for a moment that I find your proposal agreeable. I would need to know how you intend to overthrow my father. He's somewhat invincible, you see. No, he isn't, I said. I'm going to show you how weak he really is. And how do you know this? I closed my eyes and said, Insight. Lara lapsed into a thoughtful silence for a moment. Then she said, There is something else I must know, wizard. Why? Why do this? I owe Thomas for favors past, I said. He's been an ally, and if I leave him hanging out to dry, it's going to be bad for me in the long term, when I need other allies. If the plan comes off, I also get someone in charge of things at the White Court who is more reasonable to work with. Lara made a soft sound that was probably mostly pensive, but that would have been a lot more interesting in the dark. Uh, I mean, in person. No, she said then. That's not all of it. Why not? That would be sufficient reason if it were me, she said. But you aren't like me, wizard. You aren't like most of your own kind. I have no doubt that you have reasonable skill at the calculus of power, but calculation is not at the heart of your nature. You prepare to take a terrible risk, and I would know why your heart is set to it. I chewed on my lip for a second, weighing my options and the possible consequences, and I said, Do you know who Thomas's mother was? Margaret Le Fay, she said, puzzled. But what does that... She stopped abruptly. Ah, now I see. That explains a great deal about his involvement in political matters over the past few years. She let out a little laugh but it was somehow sad. You're much like him, you know. Thomas would sooner tear off his own arm than see one of his siblings hurt. He's quite irrational about it. Is that reason enough for you? I asked. I am not yet entirely devoid of affection for my family, wizard. It satisfies me. Besides, I added, I've just handed you a secret with the potential for some fairly good blackmail down the line. She laughed. Oh, you do understand me. Are you in? There was silence. When Lara finally spoke again, her voice was firmer, more eager. I do not know precisely where my father would have had Thomas taken. Can you find out? Her voice took on a pensive tone. In fact, I believe I can. Perhaps it was fate. What was fate? You'll see, she said. What sort of time frame did you have in mind? An immediate one, I said. The immediater, the better. I'll need half an hour, or a little more. Meet me at my family's home, north of town. Half an hour-ish, I said. Until then. I hung up the phone just as a loud, low rumble approached my house. A moment later, Murphy came back in. She was decked out in biker-gray denim and leather again. I guess we're going somewhere. 
Rev up the hog, I said. You ready for another fight? Her teeth flashed. She tossed me a red motorcycle helmet and said, Get on the bike, bitch. Chapter 37 Motorcycles aren't safe transport, as far as it goes. I mean, insurance statistics show that everyone in the country is going to wind up in a traffic accident of some kind, and most of us are going to be involved in more than one. If you're driving around in a beat-up old Lincoln battleship and someone clips you at 20 miles an hour, it probably is going to frighten and annoy you. If you're sitting on a motorcycle when it happens, you'll be lucky to wind up in traction. Even if you aren't in an accident with another vehicle, it's way too easy to get yourself hurt or killed on a bike. Bikers don't wear all that leather around simply for the fashion value or possible felony assaults. It's handy for keeping the highway from ripping the skin from your flesh should you wind up losing control of the bike and sliding along the asphalt for a while. All that said, riding a motorcycle is fun. I put on the bulky, clunky red helmet, fairly certain that I had never before disguised myself as a kitchen matchstick. Murphy's black helmet, by comparison, looked like something imported from the 25th century. I sighed as the battered corpse of my dignity took yet another kick in the face and got on the bike behind Murphy. I gave her directions, and her old Harley growled as she unleashed it on the unsuspecting road. I thought the bike was going to jump out from underneath me for a second, and my balance wobbled. Dresden! Murphy shouted back to me, annoyed. Hang on to my waist! With what? I shouted back. I waved my bandaged hand to one side of her field of vision and the hand holding the staff to the other. In answer, Murphy took my staff and shoved the end of it down into some kind of storage rack, placed so conveniently close to the rider's right hand that it couldn't have been mistaken for anything but a holster for a rifle or baseball bat. My staff stuck up like the plastic flagpole on a golf cart, but at least I had a free hand. I slipped my arm around Murphy's waist, and I could feel the muscles over her stomach tensing as she accelerated or leaned into turns, cueing me to match her. When we got out onto some open road and zoomed out of the city, the wind took the ends of my leather duster, throwing them back up into the air of the bike's passage, and I had to hold tight to Murphy or risk having my coat turn into a short-term parasail. We rolled through Little Sherwood and up to the entrance of Chateau Wraith. Murphy brought the Harley to a halt. It might have taken me a few extra seconds to take my arm from around her waist, but she didn't seem to mind. She had her bored cop face on as she took in the house, the roses, and the grotesque gargoyles, but I could sense that underneath it she was as intimidated as I had been, and for the same reasons. The enormous old house reeked of the kind of power and wealth that disdains laws and societies. It loomed in traditional scary fashion, and it was a long way from help. I got off the bike, and she passed me my staff. The place was silent, except for the sound of wind slithering through the trees. There was a small flickering light at the door, another at the end of the walk up to it, and a couple of splotches of landscape lighting, but other than that, nothing. What's the plan? Murphy asked. She kept her voice low. Fight? Not yet, I said, and gave her the short version of events. Watch my back. Don't start anything unless one of the wraiths tries to physically touch you. If they can do that, there's a chance they could influence you in one way or another. 
Murphy shivered. Not an issue. If I could help it, they weren't going to be touching me anyway. An engine roared, and a white sports car shot through the last several hundred yards of Little Sherwood. It all but flew up the drive, narrowly missed Murphy's bike, spun, and screeched to a neat stop, parallel parked in the opposite direction. Murphy traded a glance with me. She looked impressed. I probably looked annoyed. The door opened, and Lara slid out, dressed in a long, loose red skirt and a white cotton blouse with embroidered scarlet roses. She walked purposefully toward us. Her feet were bare. Silver flashed on a toe and one ankle, and as she drew closer, I heard the jingle of miniature bells. Good evening, wizard. Lara, I said. I like the skirt. Nice statement. Very Carmen. She flashed me a pleased smile, then focused her pale gray gaze on Murphy and said, And who is this? Murphy, she said. I'm a friend. Lara smiled at Murphy very slowly. I can never have too many friends. Murph's cop face held, and she added a note of casual disdain to her voice. I didn't say your friend, she said. I'm with Dresden. What a shame, Lara said. I'm also with the police. The succubus straightened her spine a little at the words and studied Murphy again. Then she inclined her head with a little motion half suggesting a curtsy, a gesture of concession. The other door of the white sports car opened, and reformed bully Bobby got out, carsick and a little wobbly on his feet. Inari followed him a second later, slipping underneath one of his arms to help hold him steady, despite her own broken arm and sling. Lara raised her voice. Inari, be a darling and fetch her for me right away. Bobby, dear, if you could help her, I would take it as a kindness. Yeah, sure, Bobby said. He looked a little green but was recovering as he hurried toward the house with Inari. We'll bring her right down, Inari said. I waited until they had gone inside. What the hell are they doing here? I demanded of Lara. She shrugged. They insisted and there was little time for argument. I scowled. Next time you're practicing the sex appeal, maybe you should spend some time working up some go-thither to go with all the come-hither. I'll take it under advisement, she said. Who are they bringing out? I asked. Lara arched a brow. Don't you know? I gritted my teeth. Obviously not. Patience, then, darling, she said, and walked around to the back of the sports car, hips and dark hair swaying. She opened the trunk and drew out a sheathed rapier, a real one, not one of those skinny car antenna swords most people think of when they hear the word. The blade alone was better than three feet long, as wide as a couple of my fingers at the base, tapering to a blade as wide as my pinky nail and ending in a needle tip. It had a winding guard of silver and white lacquered steel that covered most of the hand, adorned with a single red rose made of tiny rubies. Lara drew out a scarlet sash, tied it on, and slipped the sheathed weapon through it. There, she said, and sauntered over to me again. Still Carmen? Less Carmen, more Pirates of Penzance, I said. She put the spread fingers of one hand over her heart. Gilbert and Sullivan, I may never forgive you that. 
How will I find the will to go on? I asked and rolled my eyes at Murphy. And hey, while we're on the subject of going on... Inari slammed the door of the house open and held it that way. Bobby came out a minute later carrying an old woman in a white nightgown in his arms. The kid was big and strong, but he didn't look like he needed to be to carry her. There was an ephemeral quality to the woman. Her silver hair drifted on any wisp of air. Her arms and legs hung weakly, and she was almost painfully thin. The kid came to us, and I got a better look. It wasn't an old woman. Her skin was unwrinkled, even if it had the pallor of those near death, and her arms and legs weren't wasted, but were simply slender with youth. Her hair, though, was indeed silver, white, and gray. The evening breeze blew her hair away from her face, and I knew it had gone gray literally overnight. Because the girl was Justine. Hell's bells, I said quietly. I thought she was dead. Lara stepped up beside me, staring at the girl, her features hard. She should be, she said. Anger flickered in my chest. That's a hell of a thing to say. It's a matter of perspective. I don't bear the girl any malice, but given the choice, I would rather she died than Thomas. It's the way of things. I shot her a look. What? Lara moved a shoulder in a shrug. Thomas pulled himself away from her at the last possible instant, she said. Truth be told, it was after that instant. I don't know how he managed it. And that bothers you, I demanded. It was an unwarranted risk, she said. It was foolish. It should have killed him to draw away. I gave her a look that managed to be both blank and impatient. It's the intensity of it, she said. It's a unification. Thomas's store of life energy was all but gone. Forcibly breaking away from a vessel. From Justine, I interrupted. Lara looked impatient now. Forcibly breaking away from Justine was an enormous psychic trauma, and he was at his weakest. Taking only lightly and breaking the contact isn't difficult. In fact, it's normally the way of things. But he'd been feeding regularly from the girl for several years. He could draw energy from her with a simple caress. To take her fully, Lara's eyes grew a shade paler, and the tips of her breasts tightened against her blouse. There's no thought involved in it, no judgment, no hesitation, only need. That's horrible, Murphy said, her voice a whisper, to force that on her. Lara's pale eyes drifted to Murphy. Oh, no, it isn't coerced, dear officer. She was more than willing to give. When prey has been taken so many times, they stop caring about death. There's only the pleasure of being fed upon. They're eager to give more, and they care nothing about the danger. Murphy sounded sickened. Maybe she broke it off instead. Lara's mouth curled into a smirk. No. By the time my brother took enough to restore him to his senses, the girl was little more than an animal in season. Murphy's eyes narrowed as she stared at Lara. And talking about it excites you. 
That's sick. Have you never made yourself hungry by talking about food, Officer Murphy? Lara asked. Murphy scowled, but didn't answer. In any case, Lara said, what Thomas did was cruel. Justine cared for him as much as any of our prey ever can. There was little left when he drew away of her body or her mind. Strictly speaking, she survived, officer, but I'm not sure one could say that she is alive. I get it, I said. She and Thomas had made an impression on each other, a sort of psychic bond, and you think Justine might be able to tell us where he is? Lara nodded. It happens when we keep someone too long, though I'm surprised you know of it. I didn't, I said. But when Bianca took Justine from him, Thomas knew where she was being held in Bianca's manner. He wouldn't say how. Lara nodded. If there is enough of her mind left, she might be able to lead us to my brother. I do not think he will be far from here. Father does not often travel far outside the property he controls. Bobby reached us with the girl, and Inari ducked into the house and came out with a wheelchair. She rushed it over to Justine, and Bobby settled her into it. I knelt down by the wheelchair. Justine lay almost bonelessly, barely holding her head up. Her dark eyes were heavy and unfocused. A small smile touched her mouth. Her eyes were sunken, and her skin was almost translucent. She took slow, shallow breaths, and I heard her make a soft, pleased sound on each exhalation. Man, I breathed. She looks out of it. Tick-tock, Murphy reminded me. I nodded and waved my hand in front of Justine's eyes. No reaction. Justine, I said quietly. Justine, it's Harry Dresden. Can you hear me? A faint line appeared on her forehead, though her expression did not quite become a frown, but it was something. Justine, I said, listen to me. Thomas is in trouble. Do you hear me? Thomas is in danger, and we need you to find him. A slow shudder rolled through her. She blinked her eyes, and though they didn't quite focus, they stirred, looking around her. Thomas, I said again. Come on, Justine. I need you to talk to me. She took a deeper breath. The languid pleasure on her face faded, replaced with a portion of both sadness and desire. Thomas, she whispered. Yeah, I said. Where is he? Can you tell me where he is? This time her eyes lost focus completely, then closed. Her lovely face smoothed into an almost meditative concentration. Feel. Where? Frustration threatened to overwhelm me. What do you feel? She moved a hand and touched the opposite wrist, then her knee. Chains. Cold. Lara leaned over her and asked, Is he far away? Justine shivered. Not far. Which direction? I asked. She made a feeble, vague motion with her hand, but frowned at the same time. I don't think she's strong enough to point, I said to Lara. Lara nodded and told Inari, Turn the chair around slowly, please. Justine, I said, can you tell us when he's in front of you? 
The girl opened her eyes. They met mine for a heartbeat. And boy, howdy, did I chicken out and look away fast. No soul gaze, please. I'd had too many dying sheep tattooed into my memory for one day. But as Inari turned the chair, Justine suddenly lifted her head and her hand and pointed out into the darkness. The motion was weak, but in comparison to the others, it was nearly forceful. Lara stared out at the night for a moment and then said, The deeps. He's in the deeps. What? Murphy asked. Lara frowned. It's an old cave on the northern edge of the property. There's a shaft, a natural chasm, and no one is sure how far down it goes. We use it for... Disposing of things, I said quietly, like corpses. Yes. How long will it take us to get there? There's a service road to the groundskeeper's cottage, she said. Go around the manor and head north. There's a white fence on the far side of the lawn. Look for the gate. I won't have to. You're coming with us, I said. Lara didn't get to answer, because the night abruptly filled with deadly thunder, and a major league pitcher planted a fastball directly between my shoulder blades. I went down hard, and concrete skinned my face. I heard Murphy grunt and hit the ground half of a heartbeat later. I managed to move my head a second later, in time to see one of the bodyguard Kens standing on the front porch of the manor. He worked the slide on a shotgun, the barrel tracking Lara. The succubus darted to her left, as swift and graceful as a deer, and the bodyguard followed her. The barrel of the gun found Inari before it caught up to Lara, and the girl stood frozen, her eyes as wide as teacups. Look out! Bobby screamed. He hit Inari in a flying tackle that would have rattled the teeth of a professional fullback, and the gun went off. Blood scattered into the air in a heavy red mist. Bodyguard Ken started pumping another round into the weapon, and the nearest target was Justine. The girl sat staring toward where she'd said Thomas was. I didn't think she could even hear the shots, much less move to avoid them, and I knew that she was going to die. That is, until Murphy popped up into a kneeling firing stance, gun in hand. The gunman spun to aim at her and fired. He'd rushed himself, and the blast went wide of Murphy. It tore into the white sports car and shredded its left front tire. Murphy didn't shoot back right away. She aimed her pistol for an endless half-second while bodyguard Ken ejected the previous shell and began to squeeze the trigger again. The spent shell hit the ground. Murphy's gun barked. Bodyguard Ken's head jerked to one side as if someone had just asked him a particularly startling question. Murphy shot him three more times. A second shot made a fingertip-sized hole in the gunman's cheekbone. The third shattered against the brick of the house, and the fourth smacked into his chest. He must have been wearing armor, but the impact of the hit was enough to send him toppling limply backward. The shotgun went off as he fell, discharging into the air, but he was dead before the echoes faded away. Murphy watched the gunman with flat, icy eyes for a second, and then spun to me, setting her gun aside to reach under my coat. I'm okay, I wheezed. I'm okay. The coat stopped it. Murphy looked startled. Since when has the duster been lined with Kevlar? It isn't, I said. It's magic. Hurts like hell, but I'll be all right. Murphy gripped my shoulder hard. 
Thank God. I thought you were dead. Check the kid. I think he took a hit. She went over to Bobby and Inari and was joined by Lara. I followed a moment later. Inari was whimpering with pain. Bobby was in shock, lying there quietly while he bled from his shredded shoulder and arm. He'd been lucky as hell. Only part of the blast had taken him, and while the wound would leave him with some nasty scars, it hadn't torn open any arteries. He'd live. Murphy grabbed a first aid kit off of her bike and got the wound site covered up and taped down with a pressure bandage. Then she moved on to the girl. Is he all right? Inari's voice was panicky. He was so brave. Is he all right? He should be, Murphy said. Where's it hurt? It's my shoulder, Inari said. Oh, God, it hurts. Murphy tore open the girl's T-shirt with ruthless practicality and examined the injury. Not shot, she said. Looks like she did it when the kid pulled her out of the line of fire. Murphy moved her hand, and Inari went breathless and pale with pain. Crap. It's her collarbone, Harry. Maybe a dislocated shoulder, too. She can't move herself. Both of them need an ambulance, and now... She looked over at the bodyguard and shook her head. And there's a fatality on the scene. This is getting bad, Dresden. We have to put this fire out before it goes wild. We don't have time to wait around while the cops sort things out, I said. And if we don't report the shooting along with the gunshot wounds, we're going to have police crawling through every inch of our lives. It was an accident, Lara said. The boy and Inari were looking at my father's collection of guns. She slipped and fell. The shotgun went off. What about the body? Murphy demanded. Lara shrugged. What body? Murphy glared at Lara and cast me a glance of appeal. Harry? Hey, telling the truth keeps getting me put in jail. And the last time I tried to engineer a cover-up, I wound up cleverly running off with the murder weapon and covering it with my prints before handing it over to someone who thought I was a murderer at the time. So don't look at me. There's no time to argue about this, Lara said. If one of my father's guards saw you, he'll have reported you. The others will be on their way and will be more heavily armed, she focused on Murphy. Officer, let me handle this quietly. It will only protect the mortal officers who might get involved. And after all, only the man who died committed any crime. Murphy narrowed her eyes. I will owe you a favor, Lara said. If matters go well tonight, it could be a considerable asset to you in the future. Dealing with the wraiths is a dark business. Let it stay in the dark. Murphy hesitated. Then her mouth firmed into a line and she nodded once. She changed out the clip in her pistol to a fresh one. Come on, she said. Let's move before I start thinking about this. Moving before I think is my specialty, I said. The road... Lara said. Through the gate, behind the house. I'll meet you at the groundskeeper's cottage. Why not squeeze onto the bike, I said. Murphy gave me an arch look. I'm just being practical, I said defensively. Someone has to call the ambulance and move the body, Lara said. And I'd get there faster on my own, in any case. I'll catch up to you when I can. Which I figured was as much assurance as I'd get from her. It wasn't encouraging, but time was short, my options few, and standing around outdoors was likely to get everyone a bad case of deaditis. So I strode to Murphy's bike. 
Let's go. Murphy came over to me, eyes on Lara. She'll turn on us, she said quietly. She'll back the winning horse, so it'd better be you and me. Can you handle the vigilante thing? She smiled at me, nervous but game. Get on the bike, bitch. She got on, I got on behind her, and, rebels that we were, neither of us put on a helmet. What can I say? I like to live dangerously. Chapter 38 Murphy zipped around the house, tearing up the lawn with her Harley. We were doing better than sixty by the time she cleared the smooth turf surrounding the manor and zipped through an open gate onto a long, narrow gravel lane lined with high hedges. Ahead of us, headlights on high beam flashed into our eyes and an engine roared. Lara had been right. Wraith's bodyguards knew we were coming. The car surged toward us. Murphy's head whipped left and right, but the hedges were old growth, impassable and unbroken. Crap! No time to turn! Ahead of us, I saw the silhouette of the remaining bodyguard Ken climb out of the car window to sit on it and lift a gun to his shoulder. I leaned forward into Murphy and took my staff from the holster. Murphy! I shouted. We need more speed! Go faster! She looked over her shoulder, blue eyes wide, blonde hair lashing around her cheeks. Go! I screamed. I felt her shoulders set as she turned back to the front and stomped on gears with one foot, and the old Harley roared as it dug into the road with ferocious power and shot ahead at terrifying speed. Flame spat from the shape ahead of us, and bullets hit the road, kicking up sparks and bits of gravel with a series of whistling whiplash sounds that beat the sound of exploding shots to us by almost a second. I ignored the gunman, focusing on the staff. Of all of my foci, the staff was the most versatile, meant simply to assist with the redirection of forces I could use to call wind, to bend steel bars, and to channel lightning. I had used my staff to erect barriers of force, disrupt hostile magics, and in a pinch to beat bad guys about the head and shoulders. I took the tool, the trademark and icon of a wizard, and couched it under my arm like a lance, the tip extending past Murphy's bike. I reached out for my will and gathered up power, feeding it into the rune-carved wood. What are you doing? Murphy screamed. Faster! I thundered. Don't turn! Murphy had another gear, and that damned Harley had to have been built by demons, not engineers. No vehicle without a roll cage had any business going that fast. But I needed it to have enough force to survive. Even wizards cannot escape the consequences of physics. You can call up a storm of fire, but it won't burn without fuel and air. Want to infuse yourself with superhuman strength? It's possible. But keep in mind that just because your muscles have gotten supercharged, it doesn't mean that your bones and joints can support the weight of a Volkswagen. By the same line of reasoning, force still equals mass times acceleration, no matter how big your magic wand might be. Me plus Murphy plus her Harley didn't mass anywhere near what the car and the people in it did. I could give us an advantage, but even with the staff, I could stretch the rules only so far. Our mass wasn't going to change. And that meant that we needed all the acceleration we could get. I started channeling our force into the staff, focusing it into a blunted wedge in front of us. All the extra power flooding ahead of us started heating the air, 
and flickers of blue and purple fire began streaking back around us in a corona, like one of the space shuttles on re-entry. You have got to be kidding me! Murphy screamed. The oncoming car got closer. The bodyguard started shooting again, then dropped the gun and slid back into the car in a panic, strapping on his seatbelt. This is insane! Murphy yelled, but the Harley kept going faster. The oncoming headlights loomed up in blinding brilliance. The other driver leaned on the horn. Murphy screamed in terror and challenge in response. I shouted, Forzari! and unleashed my will. It went rocketing down through the staff. Again, its runes and sigils flared into hellish light, and the flickering corona of fire ahead of us blazed into an incandescent cloud. Murphy's bike didn't waver. Neither did the bodyguard's car. There was a flash of light and thunder as the force lance struck the car, and between the reckless speed of Murphy's hog and my will, physics landed firmly on our side. Our side of the equation was bigger than theirs. The car's hood and front bumper crumpled as if they'd hit a telephone pole. The windows shattered inward as force I'd redirected lashed through the car. I screamed as glass and steel started flying, and with every scrap of strength that I had, I willed an angle into the lance, deflecting the car. Its front right wheel flew up off the ground, and the rest of the car followed, flipping up into the air and into a lateral roll. I heard the bodyguards inside, screaming. There was an enormous crunch, totally drowning out Murphy's cry and my own howling, and then we were through it, continuing down the lane, shedding flames behind us like bits of wax melting from a candle, and we were suddenly screaming in triumph. We'd survived. The smoldering staff suddenly felt like it weighed a ton, and I almost dropped it. Exhaustion followed into the rest of my body a breath later, and I slumped against Murphy's back, looking behind us. The car hadn't exploded like they do on TV, but it had torn through ten or twelve feet of heavy hedge and slammed into a tree. The car lay on its side, steaming. Glass and broken bits of metal were spread on the ground around it in a field of debris at least fifty feet across. The airbags had deployed, and I could see a pair of crumpled forms inside. Neither of them was moving. Murphy kept the Harley racing forward and was casting laughter into the wind all the way down the road. What? I called to her. Why are you laughing? She half turned her head. Her face was flushed, her eyes sparkling. I think you were right about the vibrator thing. Half a mile later, we rolled up to a house that could have handled a family of four without trouble. By the standards of the Wraith estate, I guess that qualified it as a cottage. Murphy killed the bike's engine maybe two hundred yards out, and we coasted in the rest of the way, the only sound, the crunching grind of gravel under the tires. She stopped the bike, and we both sat there in the silence for a minute. See a cave? she asked me. Nope, I said, but we can't wait for Lara to show up. Any ideas how to find it? Murphy asked. Yeah, I said. I've never heard of a ritual spell that didn't involve fire and some chanting and some smelly incense and stuff. Christ, Dresden, we don't have time to wander around the woods in the dark hoping to smell our way to the cave. Isn't there some way you could find it? With magic? Iffy. I'm not sure what I would do to look for a cave. Murphy frowned. 
Then this is stupid, she said. We'd be smarter to back off and come back with help and light. You could defend yourself against this curse, couldn't you? Maybe, I said. But that last one came in awfully strong and fast, and it changes everything. I can swing at a slow-pitch softball and hit it every time. Not even the best hitter can hit 500 against major league pitching. How did they do it? she asked. Blood sacrifice, I said. Has to be. Wraith is involved with the ritual now. My face twisted with bitter anger. He's got experience using it. He's got Thomas now, which means he isn't going to target him with the curse. Wraith's going to bleed him to help kill me. The only chance Thomas has is for me to stop the curse. Murphy sucked in a breath. She hopped off the bike and drew her gun, holding it down by her leg. Oh, you circle left, and I'll circle right, and we'll sniff for the cave, then. Oh, I'm an idiot, I said. I leaned my still-glowing staff against the bike and jerked the silver amulet off my neck. My mother left this to me. Thomas has one like it. She had forged a link between them so that when one of us was touching both of them, we got a sort of a psychic voicemail. Meaning what? Murphy asked. I twisted the chain around the index finger of my burned hand, letting it dangle. Meaning I can use that link to find the other amulet again. If he has it, Murphy said. He will, I said. After last night, he won't take it off. How do you know that? Because I know it, I said. I held my right hand palm up and tried to focus upon it. I found the link, the channel through which my mother's latent enchantment had contacted Thomas and me, and I poured some of my will into it, trying to spread it out. Because I believe it. The amulet quivered on its string and then leaned out toward the night to our left. Stay close, I said, and turned in that direction. Okay, Murph. There was no answer. My instincts clamored in alarm. I dropped my concentration and looked around, but Murphy was nowhere in sight. Directly behind me there was a muffled sound, and I turned to find Lord Wraith standing there with an arm around Murphy's neck, covering her mouth, and with a knife pressed up hard against her ribs. He was wearing all black this time, and in the autumn moonlight he looked like little more than a shadow, a pale and grinning skull and a very large knife. Good evening, Mr. Dresden. Wraith, I said. Put the staff down, amulet too, and the bracelet. He pressed the knife and Murphy sucked in a sharp breath through her nose. Now! Damn it! I dropped the bracelet, the staff, and my amulet to the grass. Excellent, Wraith said. You were right about Thomas keeping his amulet with him. I found it around his neck when I was cutting his shirt off to have him chained down. I was fairly certain that you would judge such an obviously linked item to be too hazardous to employ in any location magic. But on the off chance I was wrong, I kept my own location spell going. I've been watching you since you arrived. You must feel smug and self-satisfied. Are you getting to a point? I asked. Absolutely, he said. Kneel and place your hands behind your back. The remaining bodyguard Barbie appeared. She had a set of prisoner's shackles. What if I don't? I asked. 
Wraith shrugged and shoved an inch of the knife between Murphy's ribs. She bucked in sudden, startled pain. Wait, I said. Wait, wait. I'm doing it. I knelt, put my hands behind my back, and bodyguard Barbie hooked steel links to my wrists and ankles. That's better, Wraith said. To your feet, wizard. I'm going to show you the deeps. Kill me with that entropy curse from point-blank range, hey? I said. Precisely, Wraith responded. Gaining you what? I asked. Immense personal satisfaction, he said. Funny, I said. For a guy warded against magic, you seem to want to get rid of my gear pretty bad. This is a new shirt, he said with a smile. And besides, can't have you killing the help, or Thomas, to spite me. Funny, I said. You seem to be a lot of talk and not much do. I've heard about all kinds of things you are capable of. Enslaving women you feed on, killing with a kiss, superhuman badassedness. But you aren't doing any of it. Wraith's mouth set into a snarl. The White Council has taken a few shots at you. But when they quit, you didn't go gunning for anyone, I continued. And hey... What with you being invincible and all, there's got to be a reason for that. You must have been approached by others. I bet you got some pretty juicy offers. And I just can't square that with someone who allows a tart like Trixie Vixen to snap at him over the phone like she did to you today. Wraith's white face went whiter with rage. I would not say such things were I in your position, wizard. You're going to kill me anyway, I said. Hell, you've pretty much got to. I mean, we're at war, after all. And there you are, all immune to magic. Must be a lot of pressure from the Reds for the White Court to get off its ass and do something. Makes you wonder why you didn't just wham, kiss of death me back there. Maybe get it on tape or something so you could show it off. Or hell, why you haven't socked the kiss of death on Murphy there just to shut me up. Is that what you want to see, wizard? Wraith said, his tone threatening. I smiled at Wraith's threat and said, my tone a schoolyard sing-song, Lord Wraith and Murphy sitting in a tree, not K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Wraith clutched harder at Murphy's throat and she arched her back, gasping, Dresden! I subsided with the chant, but I didn't let up. See, immune to getting hurt is one thing, I said. But I'm thinking my mother's death curse hit you where it hurt. A while later, there's a parasite called a tick. Lives in the Ozarks. And it is nigh invulnerable, I said. But it isn't unkillable. Hard to squash, sure. But it can still be pierced with the right weapon. Or it can be smothered. I smiled at Wraith. And it can starve. He stood as still as a statue, staring at me. His grip on Murphy's throat slackened. That's why you've been old news, I said quietly. Mom said she'd arranged it so that you would suffer, and since the night you killed her, you haven't been able to feed, have you? Haven't been able to top off the tank of vampire superpower gas. So no kisses of death, no assaults on wizards, no direct assaults on Thomas when a couple of death plots failed. 
You even had to have willing help for this operation, because there was no more enslaving women to your will. Though I take it from Anari being alive that the plumbing works. And after that, I take it from the fact that you haven't raped her into psychic slavery, that you can't do that part. Must have made things hard for you, huh, Wraith? Did you get the double entendre there, man? Made things hard? Insolent, Wraith said at last. Utterly insolent. You are like her. I let out a breath. It had been only a strong theory until his reaction had confirmed it. Yeah, thought so. You've been nothing but talk since my mom got finished with you. Living for years, talking a good game, and hoping that no one noticed what you weren't doing. Hoping no one figured out that one of your broodmares gelded you. Bet that was terrifying, living like that. Perhaps, he said in a low murmur. They're going to figure it out, I said quietly. This is a pointless exercise. It will cost you to kill us, and you aren't getting any more. Ever. You'd be smarter to cut your losses and start running. Wraith's cold face again lifted into a smile. No, boy. You aren't the only one who worked out what your mother did to me, and how. So, instead, you and your brother are going to die tonight. Your deaths will end your mother's paltry little binding, along with her bloodline, of course. His eyes flashed to Murphy, and he said with a slow smile, And then, perhaps, something to eat. I am, after all, very hungry. You son of a bitch, I snarled. Wraith smiled at me again, then told the Barbie, Bring him. And with that, Murphy still pinned on his knife. Don't miss the symbolism there, Doc Freud. He led us through thirty yards of trees and down a rough slope into cold and darkness. Chapter 39 Lord Wraith led us into the cave he called the Deeps, and the bodyguard Barbie kept her gun on me while simultaneously remaining well out of easy reach. She wasn't any tricksy vixen anyway. If I jumped her, she'd shoot me, and that would be that. Not that I could have done much jumping, what with the leg irons and all. I had trouble just shuffling along while ducking my head low enough to keep from bumping into rocky protrusions from the cave's roof. Murph, I said. How are you doing? I'm feeling a little repressed, she responded. There was tight pain in her voice. I'm fulfilling this hostage stereotype, and it's pissing me off. That's good, Wraith said. He still had her by the neck, with the knife he held actually pressed a tiny bit into the wound he'd already given. Defiance adds a great deal of enjoyment to feeding, Ms. Murphy. He put a contemptuous emphasis on the honorific. It is, after all, a great deal more pleasurable to conquer than to rule. And defiant women can be conquered again and again before they break. I ignored Wraith. How's your side? Murphy shot a glare over her shoulder at her captor. A little prick like this? It's nothing. In answer, Wraith threw Murphy against the wall. She caught herself and turned her hand blurring in a short, vicious strike. 
Rafe wasn't human. He caught her hand without so much as looking at it. He drove her hand and wrist back against the wall and brought the bloody tip of his knife sharply up under her chin. Her lip twisted into a defiant snarl and her knee lashed up as she kicked. Wraith blocked it with a sweep of his thigh and pressed in close to her, all sinuous, serpentine speed and strength, until he was pressed to her front, his face to hers, raven-black hair mingling with her dark gold. Warrior women are all the same, Wraith said, his eyes on Murphy's. His voice was low, slow, lilting. You all know your way around struggling with other bodies, but you know little about the needs of your own. Murphy stared at him, shoulders twitching, and her lips slowly parted. It's bound into you, Wraith whispered, deeper than muscle and bone, the need, the only way to escape the blackness of death. You cannot deny it, cannot escape it. In joy, in despair, in darkness, in pain, mortal kind still feels desire. His hand slid down from her wrist, his fingertips lightly brushing the thick veins. A soft sound escaped from Murphy's throat. Wraith smiled. There. You already feel yourself weakening. I've taken thousands like you, lovely child, taken them and broken them. There was nothing they could do. There is nothing you can do. You were made to feel desire. I was made to use it against you. It is the natural cycle, life and death, mating and death, predator and prey. Wraith leaned closer with each word and brushed his lips against Murphy's throat as he spoke. Born mortal, born weak, and easily taken. Murphy's eyes went wide, her body arched in shock. She let out a low, sobbing sound as she tried and failed to hold back her voice. Wraith drew his head slowly back, smiling down at Murphy. And that's only a taste, child. When you know what it is to be truly taken later this night, you will understand that your life ended the moment I wanted you. His hand moved, sudden and hard, digging his thumb against the wound in her ribs. Her face went white, and another similar cry escaped her. She crumpled, and Wraith let her fall to the ground. He stood over her for a moment and then said, We'll have days, little one, weeks. You can spend them in agony or in bliss. The important thing to realize is that I'll be the one who decides which. You are no longer in command of your body nor your mind. You no longer have a choice in the matter. Murphy gathered herself together and managed to lift her eyes again. They were defiant and blurred with tears, but I could see the terror in them as well, and a sort of sickened, hideous desire. You're a liar, she whispered. I am my own. Wraith said quietly, I can always tell when a woman feels desire, Ms. Murphy.
I can feel yours. Part of you is so tired of being disciplined, tired of being afraid, tired of denying yourself for the good of others. He knelt down and Murphy's eyes shied away from his. That part of you is what wanted to feel the pleasure I just gave. And it is that part of you that will grow as it feels more. A defiant young woman is already dead. She is simply too afraid to admit it. He seized her hair and started dragging her, careless and hard. I saw her face for a second, confusion and fear and anger warring for control of her expression. But I knew she'd taken a wound far more grievous than any physical injury I'd seen her sustain. Wraith had forced her to feel something, and there had been nothing she could do to stop him. She'd done her best to tear into him, and he had slapped her down like a child. It wasn't Murphy's fault that she'd lost that fight. It wasn't her fault that he'd forced sensation upon her. I mean, hell, he was the lord of the freaking nation of sexual predators, and even weakened and hampered by my mother's curse, he had been able to take apart Murphy's psychic and emotional defenses. If he got the full measure of his powers back, what he would do to Murphy in retaliation for what my mother had done to him would be worse than death. The damnedest thing was that there wasn't much I could do about it. Not because I was chained up, held at gunpoint, and probably going to die, though I had to admit that might make things somewhat difficult, but because this wasn't a fight that someone else could win for Murphy. The real battle was inside of her her strength of will against her own well-founded fears. Even if I did ride in on a white horse to save her, it would mean only that she would be forced to question her own strength and integrity thereafter, and that would be nothing more than a slow death of her self-reliance and strength of will. It was something I could not save her from, and I had asked her to face it. Wraith hauled on her hair as if it had been a dog's lead. Murphy didn't fight back. I clenched my hands into impotent fists. Murphy was in very real danger of dying that night, even if she kept on breathing and her heart kept on beating. But she would have to be the one to save herself. The best thing I could do was nothing. The best thing I could say was nothing. I had some power, but it couldn't help Murphy now. Hell's bells. Irony blows. Chapter 40 I'd been in a few caves that were the headquarters for dark magic and those who trafficked in it. None of them had been warm, none of them had been pleasant, and none of them had been professionally decorated. Until now. After a long, precipitous slope into the earth, the wraith deeps opened up into a cavern bigger than most Paris cathedrals. To a degree, it resembled one. Lights played in soft colors on the walls, mostly shifting rosy hues. The cave was of living rock, and the walls had all been shaped by water into nearly organic-looking curves and swirls. The floor sloped very slightly up to where a shift in the rock gave rise to an enormous carved chair of pure bone-white stone. The chair had been decorated with flares and flanges and every kind of carved frivolity you could imagine, 
so that it sat at the center of all the carving like a peacock poised in front of its tail. Water fell in a fine mist from overhead, and more lights played through it, broken by the droplets into myriad spectra. To the right hand of the throne was a smaller carved seat, almost a stool, really, like the ones you'd imagine lions or seals perching on during circus performances. To the left was a jagged, broken gap in the rock, and behind the throne, where more of the mist fell, was simply darkness. Though the stone was smooth, it undulated in regular ripple-shaped rises toward the throne from where we entered the deeps. Here and there along the rippled floor were groups of pillows and cushions, thick woven carpets, low, narrow tables set with wine and the kinds of finger foods that tended to get smeared about fairly easily. Well, it's subtle, I said to no one in particular, but I like it. Sort of like the king and I meets harem honeys and seraglio sluts, too. Wraith strode past me and threw Murphy at a pile of pillows and cushions along one wall, the one farthest away from the entrance. She knew how to take a fall, and though the motion had been vicious and torn out some of her hair, she landed well, coming up to a shaky crouch. Bodyguard Barbie dragged my manacles and me over to the wall nearby and padlocked me to a steel ring in the wall. There was a whole row of such rings there. I tried to wiggle a little, testing the strength of the steel ring, but whoever built it knew what he was doing. No wiggle, no flexion of the ring where it joined the wall. Time? Wraith asked. Eleven thirty-nine, my lord, the bodyguard reported. Ah, good. Still time. He walked over to a group of pillows in the far corner of the room, and I realized that they had been strewn around a little raised platform of stone. The platform was a circle, perhaps ten feet across, and inside of it was a thaumaturgic triangle, an equilateral shape within the ring of the circle used in most ritual magic, because it was easier for amateurs to draw a freaking triangle than a pentacle or a star of Solomon. Thick incense wafted up from braziers around the circle, giving the cold air the sharp scent of cinnamon and some other more acrid spice. Wizard, I believe you have met my assistants. Two women rose from the shadows within the circle and faced me. The first was Madge, Arturo's first wife the disciplined businesswoman. She wore a white robe trimmed with scarlet cloth, and her hair was down. It made her look both younger and simultaneously lent her an overripe look, like fruit a day swollen and spoiled. Her eyes were no less calculating, but there was an edge of something there that I recognized. Cruelty, the love of power, to the exclusion of the well-being of one's fellow beings. The second woman, of course, was Trixie Vixen. She looked awful, and she didn't get up. I could see the thick bandages over her wounded leg as she sat quietly on one hip. The silk of her own crimson-trimmed white robe spread out in such a way that it normally would have revealed enticing curves of calf and thigh. Her eyes had the heavy, flickering look of someone on far too many drugs and used to it. Thomas was chained to the floor in the center of the thaumaturgic triangle. He was naked, gagged, 
and his pale skin was covered with bruises and the stripes of being beaten with a slender cane. There was a low ridge of rock under his spine that arched his back off the floor, pinning his shoulders back and exposing his chest in such a fashion that he would be unable to move, even if someone should be leaning over him in order to cut out his heart. You're missing one, I said. Where's wifey number two? Dear Lucille, Wraith sighed. She was far too eager to please and melodramatic about it to boot. I did not authorize her little attempt to poison you via blow dart, wizard, though I suppose I would not have been upset with her had she succeeded. But she was guiding the spell last night and had the incredibly bad taste to attempt to murder my daughter, Wraith sighed. I very nearly felt obligated to you for saving her, Dresden. Lucille assured me that she had only the best of intentions and wanted to do all that she could to continue helping me. So you sacrificed her for the curse this morning, I spat. No, he didn't, Madge said in a quiet, rather chillingly conversational tone. I did. A little bitch. I've been dreaming about something like that for years. They're wrong about revenge, you know, all the movies. I found it quite fulfilling and rewarding from an emotional standpoint. I helped, Trixie protested. I helped kill her. Bullshit, I said. You were right there holding a gun on me when Lucille died, you you self-deluded, half-witted schlong jockey. Trixie shrieked, lurched up, and started to throw herself at me. Madge and Wraith caught her arms and let her thrash for a moment until she was panting and drooping. They eased her back down. Be still, Wraith said. That's quite enough from you. Trixie hit him with a sullen scowl. You don't tell me what... Madge slapped her. Hard. One of her rings left a long line of fine red droplets on Trixie's cheek. Idiot. She spat at Trixie. If you told the police his name, instead of forgetting it for your pills and needles, the wizard would be in a cell right now. What the fuck does it matter? Trixie snarled, not looking up. He's had it now. It didn't make any difference. Madge tilted her head back and lifted her right hand, palm out and fingers spread, and said, Orbius. There was a surge of power that grated against my wizard's senses, and something wet and stinking that looked like a fusion of a fresh cow patty and a dew-speckled cobweb came into being, slapping across Trixie's face. She fell back, clawing at it with her painted fingernails and screaming. Whatever the stuff was, it stuck like superglue, and it rendered her screams all but inaudible. I shot a hard glance at Madge. She had power. Not necessarily a lot of it, but she had it. No wonder she'd made sure her hands were full when she first met me. The touch of one practitioner's hand against another's was electric and unmistakable. She dodged me neatly, which meant... You knew I was getting involved, I said. Of course, Wraith confirmed. He added a pinch of something to one of the braziers and picked up a carved box. He drew black candles from it and placed them at each tip of the triangle. Drawing you into a position of vulnerability was one of the points of the entire exercise. 
It was time to have flights of angels sing my dear son to his rest, and you and he had become entirely too friendly. I had assumed he was feeding from you and had you under his influence, but after I listened to the security tape from the portrait gallery, I was delighted. Both of Margaret's sons. I finally will escape her ridiculous little binding, remove a troublesome thorn in my side. He kicked Thomas viciously in the ribs. Thomas jerked but made no sound, his eyes burning with impotent fury. Trixie Vixen fell over onto her side, back going into desperate arches. Slay the wizard that has a full quarter of the Red Court quaking in their flesh masks. Restore a rebellious employee to acceptable controls. And now, in addition to all of that, I have acquired someone with influence among the local authorities. His eyes lingered on the subdued Murphy for a moment, growing shades more pale. Murphy didn't look up at him. Take off your shoes, little one. Wraith said. What? Murphy whispered. Take them off. Now. She flinched at the harshness of his tone. She took her shoes off. Throw them over the edge. Socks too. Murphy obeyed Wraith without lifting her eyes. The incubus made a pleased sound. Good, little one. You please me. He walked in a circle around her as if she were a car he'd just purchased. All in all, Dresden, a marked gain for the year. It bodes well for the future of House Wraith, don't you think? Trixie Vixen's heels thumped on the floor. Wraith looked down at her and then at Madge. Can you manage the ritual alone, dear? Of course, my lord, Madge said calmly. She struck a match and lit one of the candles. Well then, Wraith said. He regarded Trixie with clinical detachment until her heels had stopped drumming on the stone floor. Then he seized her hair and dragged her to the left side of the enormous throne. She still moved weakly. He lifted her by the back of the neck and pitched her out into the darkness like a bag of garbage. Trixie Vixen couldn't scream as she fell to her death, but she tried. I couldn't stop myself from feeling protest and pain as I saw another human being killed, even though I tried. Wraith dusted his hands against each other. Where was I? Taunting the wizard with how he has been manipulated from the beginning, Madge said. But I would suggest that you let me begin the conjuring at this point. The timing should be just about right. Do it, Wraith said. He walked around the circle, examining it carefully, and then walked over to me. Madge picked up a curved ritual knife and a silver bowl and stepped into the circle. She pricked her finger with a knife and smeared blood upon the circle, closing it behind her. Then she knelt at Thomas's head, lifted her face with her eyes closed, and began a slow chant in a tongue whose words twisted and writhed through her lips. Wraith watched her for a long moment, and then his head abruptly snapped up toward the exit of the cave. Bodyguard Barbie came to attention like a dog who has noticed its master taking a package of bacon out of the fridge. Sirens, Wraith said, his voice harsh. Police? asked Barbie. 
Ambulance. What happened? Who called them? Barbie shook her head. Maybe the questions were too complex for her to handle. Gee, Wraith, I said. I wonder why the EMTs have shown up. I wonder if the police are coming along, too. Don't you wonder about that? The Lord of the White Court glared at me, then turned to walk toward the ridiculously elaborate throne. I suppose it does not matter, one way or the other. Probably not, I agreed, unless Inari is involved. He stopped, frozen in his tracks. But what are the chances, I asked. I mean, I'm sure the odds are way against her being hurt. Riding a long way in the back of the ambulance with some young med tech. I'm sure Daddy's little girl is not going to vamp out for the very first time on an EMT or a doctor or a nurse or a cop, kill them in front of God and everybody, and start off her adult life with a trip to prison, where I'm sure lots of other unfortunate deaths would put her away for good. Wraith didn't turn. What? Have you done to my child? Did something happen to your child? I asked. I probably said that in as insulting a fashion as I possibly could. I hope everything is all right. But how will we know? You should just get on with the cursing, I guess. Wraith turned to Madge and said, Continue. I'll be back in a moment. Then to the bodyguard he said, Keep your gun aimed at Dresden. Shoot him if he tries to escape. The bodyguard drew her weapon. Wraith turned and darted from the room faster than humanly possible. Madge continued her twisty chant. Hey, Thomas, I said. Mm-hmm, he said through the gag. I'm going to get you out of here. Thomas lifted his head from the ground and blinked at me. Don't space out on me, man. Stay with us here. He stared at me for a second more, and then groaned and dropped his head back onto the ground. I wasn't sure if that was an affirmative or not. Murph, I called. She looked up at me, then down again. Murph, don't fall apart on me. He's the bad guy, and he's way sexy while he does it. That's his bag. He's supposed to be able to get to you. I couldn't stop him, she said in a numb voice. That's okay. I couldn't stop myself, either. She met my eyes for a second and then slumped to the floor. Leave me alone, Mr. Dresden. Right, I muttered. I focused on the bodyguard. Hey there. Look, uh, I don't know your name. She just stared at me down the length of her gun. Yeah, okay, that's hostile, I said. But look, you're a person. You're human. I'm human. We should be working together here against the vampires, right? Nothing. I get more conversation from Mr. Hey! I shouted. You! You demented U.S. Army surplus blow-up doll. I'm talking to you. So say something. She didn't. But her eyes glittered with annoyance. The first emotion I'd seen there. What can I say? Inspiring anger is my gift. I have a responsibility to use it wisely. Excuse me, I shouted as loudly as I could. Did you hear me, bitch? At this rate, I'm going to have to blow you up, too. Just like I did the bodyguard Ken's and your twin. 
Now real fury filled her eyes. She cocked her gun and opened her mouth as if she were going to actually speak to me, but I never got to hear what she was going to say. Murphy made a soundless, barefooted run, leapt and drove a flying sidekick into the back of bodyguard Barbie's neck. Whiplash was far too mild a word to describe what happened to the woman's head. Whiplash happens in friendly, healthy things like automobile accidents. Murphy meant the kick to be lethal, and that made it worse than just about any car wreck. There was a crackling sound, and Barbie dropped to the floor. The gun never went off. Murphy knelt and searched the woman, taking her gun, a couple of extra clips, a knife, and a set of keys. She stood up and started trying keys on my manacles. I looked up and watched Madge as she did. The sorceress remained on her knees in the circle, her chant flowing smoothly from her mouth in an unbroken stream. The ritual required it. Had she broken her chant, shouted a warning to the bodyguard, or moved outside the circle, it would have disrupted the ritual. And that kind of thing can draw some awfully lethal feedback for showing disrespect to whatever power is behind the ritual. She was at least as trapped as I was. Took you long enough, I said to Murphy. I was going to run out of actual sentences and just start screaming incoherently. That's what happens when your vocabulary count is lower than your bowling average. Me not like woman with smart mouth, I said. Woman, shut smart mouth and get me free, or no wild monkey love for you. She found the right key and got the shackles off me. My wrists and ankles ached. You had me scared, I said, until you called me Mr. Dresden. I almost believed he'd gotten to you. Murphy bit her lip. Between you and me, I'm not sure he didn't, she shivered. I wasn't doing much acting, Harry. You made a good call. He underestimated me, but it was close. Let's leave. Steady, just a little longer. Murphy frowned, but she didn't run. You want me to keep Madge covered? What if she does that magic superglop thing on our faces, too? I shook my head. She can't. Not until the ritual is complete. Why not? Because if she makes a mistake in the ritual, there's going to be some backlash. Maybe it wouldn't touch us, or maybe it would, but it sure as hell would kill everyone in the circle. Thomas, Murphy breathed. Yeah. Can we mess up the right? Could, but to quote Kincaid, thus kablooey, thus death. If we interrupt the ritual, or if she screws it up, things go south. But if we don't stop her, she kills Thomas. Well, yeah. Then what do we do? Murphy asked. We jump Wraith, I said, and nodded back to the wall where she had crouched. Get back to where he threw you. When he comes in again, we take him down and trade him for Thomas. Won't breaking the circle screw up the ritual? Murphy asked. Not the outer circle, I said. The circle is mostly there to help her have the juice for the ritual. Madge has got some talent and a survival instinct. She can hold it together if we break it. Murphy's eyes widened. But breaking the triangle, that will screw up the ritual. I regarded Madge steadily and said, loud enough to be sure she heard, Yep, and kill her. But we aren't going to break the triangle yet. Why not? Murphy demanded. Because we're going to offer Madge a chance to survive the evening. 
by letting her kill Wraith in Thomas's place and let the curse go to waste. So long as someone dies on schedule, whatever is behind the ritual shouldn't mind. I walked over to stand directly outside the circle. Otherwise, all I have to do is kick one of these candles over, or smudge the lines of the triangle, then back up to watch her die. And I think Madge is a survivor. She walks, Thomas is fine, and Wraith isn't giving anyone any more trouble. She'll run, Murphy said. Let her. She can run from the wardens, but she can't hide. The White Council is going to have some things to say to her about killing people with magic. Pointed things. Cutting things. Taunting the Spellslinger must be a really fun game, since people like you and Wraith keep playing it, Murphy said. But don't you think he's going to notice that you aren't being held with a gun on you anymore? I looked down at the bodyguard's body and grimaced. Yeah, the corpse is going to be a giveaway, isn't it? We looked at each other and then both bent down and grabbed an arm. We dragged the remains of the final bodyguard Barbie over to the edge of the yawning chasm and dropped her in. After that, I reached for my sword cane, still clipped to my belt, and loosened the blade in its sheath. Can't believe Wraith let you keep that, Murphy said. The guard didn't seem to be very good at employing her initiative, and he didn't specifically mention my losing the cane. Don't think he noticed it. He was pretty busy gloating, and I was chained up and all. He's like a movie villain, Murphy said. No, Hollywood wouldn't allow that much cliché. I shook my head. And I don't think he's thinking very clearly right now. He's pretty worked up about beating my mom's death curse. How tough is this guy? Murphy asked. Very tough. Ebenezer says my magic can't touch him. How's about I shoot him? Can't hurt, I said. He might get lucky and solve our problem, but only a really critical shot will drop him. And even then, it's iffy whether or not you'll get him. White court vamps don't soak up gunshots as well as red court vampires do, or ignore them like the black court, but they can get over them in a hurry. How? They have a kind of reserve of stolen life energy. They tap into it to be stronger or faster, to recover from injuries, forcibly manipulate the sensations of police lieutenants, that kind of thing. They don't run around being as tough as the black court all the time, but they can rev the engine when they need to do it. It's probably safe to assume that Lord Wraith has a great big honking tank of reserve energy. We'd have to run him out of gas in order to get to him long term. Yep. Can we do that? Don't think so, I said but we can force him to push himself pretty hard. So we almost beat him. That's the plan? Yeah. That's not a very good plan, Harry, Murphy said. It's a waskowy wabbit plan, I said. Actually, it qualifies as a crazy plan. Crazy like a fox, I said. I put my hands on her shoulders. There's no time to argue, Murph. Trust me. She flipped her hands up in a helpless little gesture slightly mitigated by the fact that she had a gun in one and a knife in the other, and turned to stalk back to the cushions where Wraith had initially thrown her. We're going to die. I grinned and stepped back to the ring where Wraith had me chained up. I stood there in the same pose as when I'd been prisoner and held the shackles behind my back, as if they might still be attached. I had barely settled into position when there was the sound of one, two, 
Three gazelle-like bounds on the sloped tunnel floor, and Wraith shot into the cavern, scowling. What idiocy, he snarled toward Madge. That stupid buck from Arturo's studio nearly slaughtered my daughter by sheer incompetence. The medical teams are taking them now. He stopped talking abruptly. Guard, he snapped. Madge, where did she go? Madge widened her eyes, still continuing the twisting, slippery words of the chant, and gave Murphy a significant look. Wraith turned, back stiffening in apprehension, to face Murphy. Madge should have warned Wraith about me. If he'd blown off old Ebenezer's lethal magic, he had defenses out the wazoo. I didn't even try to blast away at him with power. Instead, I swung the shackles once over my head and brought the flying steel down on Wraith's right ear with every ounce of strength in my body. The steel cuffs bit into his flesh with vicious strength and laid him out on the floor. He let out a snarl of shock and surprise. He turned to glare at me, his eyes burning a bright metallic silver, his torn ear already knitting itself whole again. I dropped the chains, drew my sword cane, and drove the blade straight at Wraith's left eye. The White Lord moved his hand in a blur of motion, batting the scalpel slender blade aside. I drew a sharp cut across his hand, but it didn't keep him from kicking my ankles out from underneath me with a sweep of his leg. He rose almost before I was through falling and picked up the bloodied shackles, his features set in wrath. I went flat and covered my neck with my hands. Murphy shot Wraith in the back. The first bullet came out the left side of his chest and must have left a hole in his lung. The second exploded out from between two ribs on the other side of his body. It had taken less than a second for the two shots to hit, but Wraith reversed direction, flashing to one side like a darting bat, and two more shots seemed to miss him. The motion was odd to watch and vaguely disturbing. Wraith almost flowed across the room, looking as if he were being lazy but moving with unnerving speed. He vanished behind an elaborate Oriental-style screen, and the cave's lights went out. The only source of light left in the cavern came from the three black candles at the points of the ritual's triangle, way to hell at the back of the chamber. Madge's voice continued its rippling, liquid chant, an edge of smug contempt somehow conveyed in it, her attention focused on the ritual. Thomas's bruised body twitched as he looked around, eyes wide behind the gag in his mouth. I saw his shoulders tighten as he tested the chains. They didn't seem to give way for him any more than mine had for me. Murphy's voice slid through the darkness a moment later, sounding sharp against the steady, liquid chant of the entropy curse. Harry? Where is he? I have no idea, I said, keeping the point of the sword low. Can he see in the dark? Um, tell you in a minute. Oh, she said. Crap. Chapter 41 Wraith's voice drifted out of the darkness. I can indeed see you, wizard, he said. I must admit, a brute attack was not what I expected of you. I tried to orient to the sound of Wraith's voice, but the deeps had the acoustics of, well, a cave. You really don't have a very good idea about what kind of man I am, do you? 
I had assumed that White Council training would mold you a bit more predictably, he admitted. I was certain you'd have some kind of complex magical means of dealing with me without bloodshed. I thought I heard something really close to me and swept my slender sword left and right. It whistled as it cut the air. Blood washes out with enough soda water, I said. I've got no trouble with the thought of spilling more of yours. It's sort of pink anyway. Murphy was not talking, which meant that she was acting. Either she was using the sound of my voice to get close to me so that we could team up, or she had gotten a better idea than I of Wraith's location, and she was stalking close enough to drill him in the dark. Either way, it was to our advantage for the conversation to continue. Maybe we can make a deal, Wraith, I said. He laughed, low and lazy and confident. Oh? You don't want to push this all the way, I said. You've already eaten one death curse. There's no reason for you to take another if you don't have to. He laughed gently. What do you propose? I want Thomas, I said, and I want Madge. You stop these attacks and leave Arturo alone. Tempting, he said. You want me to allow one of my most dangerous foes to live. You want me to surrender a competent ally, and then you would like me to permit the erosion of my power base to continue. And in exchange, what do I receive? You get to live, I said. My, such a generous offer, Wraith said. I can only assume this is some sort of clumsy ploy, Dresden, unless you are entirely deluded. I'll counter your offer. Run, wizard. Or I won't kill the pretty officer. I'll keep her. After I kill you, of course. Heh, <laughs> I said. You aren't in good enough shape for that to be so easy, I said. Or you wouldn't have let me stall you while we batted bullshit back and forth. In answer, Wraith said absolutely nothing. The bottom dropped out of my stomach. And better and better, the chant rolling from Madge's lips rose to a ringing crescendo. A wild, whirling wind rose within the center of the circle, catching her hair and spreading it in a cloud of dark and silver strands. As that happened... The tempo of her words shifted, and they shifted from that other tongue into English. While here we wait, O hunter of the shadows, we who yearn for your shadow to fall upon our enemy, we who cry out in need for thy strength, O Lord of slowest terror, may your right arm come to us, send unto us your captain of destruction, master craftsman of death. Let now our need become the traveler's road, the vessel for he who walks behind. The rest of my stomach promptly followed the bottom, and for a second I thought my sense of logic and reason had vanished with them. He who walks behind. Hell's holy stars and freaking stones shit bells. He who walks behind was a demon. Well, not really a demon. The walker was to a demon what one of those hockey-masked movie serial killers was to the grade school bully who had tried to shake me down once for lunch money. Justin DeMorn had sent the walker after me when we'd had our falling out, and I'd barely managed to survive the encounter. I'd torn apart he who walks behind, 
but even so, he'd left me with some unnerving scars. And the ritual Madge was using was calling that thing back. Madge picked up the sacrificial knife and the silver bowl. The whirling wind gathered into a miniature thunderstorm, hovering slowly over the triangle where Thomas was bound. See, here our offering to flow into your strength, flesh and blood taken unwilling from one who yearns to live. Bless this plea for help. Accept this offering of power. Make known to us your hand that we might dispatch him against our mutual foe, Harry Dresden. Murphy! I screamed. Get out of here! Right now! Run! But Murphy didn't run. As Madge raised the knife, Murphy appeared in the light of the black candles, darting into the circle, the knife in her teeth, the gun in one hand, and in her other, the keys she'd taken from the last bodyguard. She knelt down as Madge screamed out the last of the ritual in an ecstasy of power. Murphy had crossed the circle around the ritual, breaking it. That meant that whatever magic Madge was calling up would be able to zip right out of it without delay. The second Madge fed a life to the gathering presence of he who walks behind. Murphy set the gun down and tried one key on Thomas's chains, then another. Madge! Wraith's voice snapped in warning. I heard a flutter of movement that began five feet to my right and vanished toward the circle. Madge opened her eyes and looked down. Murphy found the key and the steel bracelet on Thomas's right arm sprang open. Madge kept screaming, reversed the knife, and drove it down at Thomas's chest. Thomas caught Madge's knife hand by the wrist, and his skin suddenly shone pale and bright. She leaned on the knife, screaming, but Thomas held her there with one arm. Murphy picked up the gun, but before she could aim it at Madge, there was a blur. Her head snapped to one side, and she dropped to the ground in abrupt stillness. Wraith stood over her unmoving form and bent with businesslike haste to recover her knife, his eyes moving to Thomas. Fumbling in haste, I seized the sheath of my cane sword from my belt, grabbed hard at my will, struggling to pull together power through the cloud of raw terror that had descended over my thoughts. I managed it, and normally invisible runes along the length of the cane burst into blue and silver light. There was a deep hum, so low that it could be felt more than heard, as I reached into the power the cane was meant to focus, the enormous and dangerous forces of earth magic. I reached out through the cane for Lord Wraith, and felt nothing. Not just empty air and drifting dust, but nothing. A cold and somehow hungry emptiness that filled the space where he should have been. I'd felt something like it before, when I'd been near a moat of one of the deadliest substances that any world of flesh or spirit had ever known. My power, my magic, the flowing spirit of life, just vanished into it without getting near Wraith. I couldn't touch him. The void around him was so absolute. I knew, without needing to doubt, that there was nothing in my arsenal of arcane skills that could affect him. But Madge didn't have any such protection. I redirected my power, easily found the knife in Madge's hand, 
and without the circle to protect her, there was nothing she could do to keep me from seizing the knife in invisible bands of earth force, magnetism, and sending it tumbling out of her grip and into the abyss of the chasm near them. No! Madge screamed, staring up at the whirling cloud of dark energy and horror. Hold him! Wraith snarled. Madge threw herself down on Thomas's arm, and as strong as he was, he had three limbs chained down, and not even supernatural strength is a substitute for proper leverage. Not only that, but Madge was desperate. She managed to force Thomas's arm down, and while she obviously couldn't have held him for long, it was long enough. Lord Wraith drove his knife down at Thomas's chest. Thomas howled in frustration and sudden pain. I rammed more power through the cane and stopped the knife a bare instant after the tip hit Thomas and pinkish blood welled up from the shallow stab wound. Wraith cast a snarl at me and shoved down on the knife, his own skin luminous, and he had the power of a pile driver behind his arms. I didn't have a prayer of stopping him, even if that void around him hadn't been sapping my power into nothingness. So I redirected my own push instead switching to a right-angle force instead of going directly against Wraith, and the knife swept hard to one side as Wraith pushed down. It dug a furrow through Thomas's flesh on the way, wetting a good three inches of the blade in his blood, but then Wraith's own power drove it down into the stone of the cavern floor, and the steel shattered. Thomas got his hand free and hit Madge, a backhanded blow that knocked her out of the light of the black candles. Harry, he yelled, break the chains, which I couldn't do. My little displays of earth magic were a long way from being of chain-shattering quality, but I did the next best thing. Wraith had to step back for a second, because a shard from the shattering knife had gone through his hand. He ripped it out of his flesh with a snarl, then turned back to Thomas and as he did, I got the bodyguard's keys in a magnetic grip and threw them hard at Lord Wraith's face. Keys are a nasty missile weapon, and any street fighter will tell you so. For fun, get yourself a milk carton and throw a ring of keys at it. You don't even have to throw it very hard. Odds are better than merely good that the milk carton is going to have holes in it and that milk is going to be dribbling out everywhere. And eyelids are way thinner than milk cartons. Wraith got a bunch of keys in the face, and they hit him hard enough to make him scream. I caught them again on the rebound and sent them zipping back at him, as if they'd been fastened to rubber bands tied to his nose. I don't care how superhumanly sexy you are, if you're a vertically symmetrical biped, you don't have much choice but to react when something tries to put out your eyes. I pummeled Wraith with the keys until he ducked out of the light of the black candles, and then I sent them darting over to Thomas. I shouted his name as I did, and he reached up and caught them with his free hand. He shook one out without delay and started freeing himself of his chains. It was just then that the swirling clouds over the empty triangle coalesced into the vague outline of an inhuman face, one that I recognized from the darkest hour of my past and the nightmares it had inhabited since. That demonic mouth split into an eerily soundless scream, as if it had created a sudden void of sound rather than the opposite. That hideous face oriented on the very edge of the remaining candlelight, upon Madge. 
the cloud surged forward and down, sprouting sudden rows of almost tooth-like spines as it did. Madge sat up, raising her hands in a useless gesture of defense. The demonic cloud shot itself forward and into her mouth. The spines tore at her, and Madge struggled to keep it out of her, but it was all useless and not particularly speedy. She had plenty of time to feel it, as the demonic killer, the guiding mind who had been behind the entropy curse, flowed in its semi-gaseous form into her mouth and throat and lungs, then extruded savage spines and tore her apart from within. Madge didn't manage to get out a scream as she died, but it wasn't for lack of trying. Thomas got his arms and legs free and got up, staring in horror at Madge or more accurately, at the spined cloud still mangling Madge's corpse from within. Wraith hit Thomas from behind, a blur of motion. There was only a second to see what was happening, but I saw it clearly when Wraith seized Thomas by the shoulder and chin, and with a single savage twist, broke his neck. Thomas fell, without so much as a twitch. No! I screamed. Wraith turned toward me. I dropped my sword, slashed at the air with the cane and my will, and the gun Murphy had taken from the bodyguard flew to my hand. Wraith's face was bruised and torn. Thick globules of pink blood had splattered over his battered features and his dark shirt. He smiled as he started toward me, and the shadows between the candles and my cane covered him. I aimed more or less at Wraith and shot. The flash showed him to me for an instant. I used that single image to redirect my fire and shot again. And again. And again. The last shot showed me Wraith, only eight or ten feet away, a look of shock upon his face. The next shot showed him on his knees, clutching at his stomach, where a welter of pink fluid had soaked him. Then the gun locked open and empty. For a minute, it was all dark. Then, Wraith's flesh began to glow. His shirt was in shreds, and he tore it from him with a negligent gesture. His skin became suffused with a pale light once more, and I saw his body rippling weirdly around an ungainly hole left of his navel. He was healing. I stared at him tiredly for a minute, then bent over and picked up my sword. He laughed at me. Dresden, wait there a moment. I'll deal with you as I did Thomas. He was my blood, I said quietly. He was my only family. Family, Wraith spat. Nothing but an accident of birth. Random consequence of desire and response. Family is meaningless. It is nothing but the drive of blood to further its own. Random combination of genes. It is utterly insignificant. Your children don't think that, I said. They think family is important. He laughed. Of course they think that. I have trained them to do so. It is a simple and convenient way to control them. And nothing more. Wraith rose, regarding me with casual confidence. Nothing more. Put the sword down, Dresden. There's no reason this has to hurt you. All pass. You can't have much left in you, I said. 
I've given you enough of a beating to kill three or four people. You'll stay down sooner or later. I have enough left in me to deal with you, he said, smiling. And after that, things will change. Must have been hard, I said. All those years, playing it careful, never pushing yourself or using your reserves, not able to risk getting your hands dirty for fear everyone would see that you couldn't do what your kind do, couldn't feed. It was an annoyance, Wraith said after a wary pause. He took a step toward me, testing my response, and perhaps taught me a measure of humility and of patience. But I never told anyone what Margaret's curse did to me, Dresden. How did you know? I kept the point of the sword pointed at his chest and said, my mother told me about it. Your mother is dead, boy. You're immune to magic, too. Guess she just doesn't have a lot of respect for the rules. His face darkened into an ugly, murderous mask. She's dead. I smirked at him, waving the tip of my sword in little circles. The glow on his skin began to fade, and the darkness closed in with deadly deliberation. It has been a pleasure speaking with you, but I am healed, wizard, Wraith snarled. I'm going to make you beg me for death. And my first meal in decades is going to be the little police girl. At which point all the lights in the cavern came up at the same time, restoring the place to its slightly melodramatic but perfectly adequate lighting. Lara stepped from behind the screen, her scarlet skirt swaying, soared on her hip, and murmured, I think I'd like to see that, father. He stopped, staring at her, his face hardening. Lara, what do you think you're doing? Writhing in disillusionment, she said. You don't love me, dearest papa. Me, your little Lara, most dutiful daughter. He let out a harsh laugh. You know better, and have for a century. Her beautiful face became remote. Then she said, My head knew, father, but my heart had hoped otherwise. Your heart, he said, scorn in his voice. What is that? Take the wizard at once. Kill him. Yes, papa, she said. In a moment. What happened to Thomas? The spell, he said. Madge lost control of it when she unleashed it at Dresden. Your brother died trying to protect him. Subdue him, dearest, and kill him. Lara smiled, and it was the coldest, most wintry expression I had ever seen. And I had seen some of the champs. She let out a mocking, scornful little laugh. Did you stage that for my benefit, wizard? It was a little rough, I said but I think I got my point across. How did you know I was watching? she asked. I shrugged. Someone had to have told Wraith that bullshit about the accident with the gun, I said. You were the only one who could have done that. And since this confrontation was going to be pivotal to your future, regardless of how it turned out, you'd be an idiot not to watch. Clever, she said again. Not only is my father drained of his reserves... He is unable to recover more. She lowered her eyelids, 
her eyes glittering like silver ice as she did. Quite helpless, really. And now you know it, I said. I gave Wraith a very small smile. Wraith's expression twisted into something somewhere between rage and horror. He took a step back from Lara, looking from her to me and back. Lara traced her fingers in light caresses over the sword at her hip. You've made me the cat's paw for you, Dresden, while making me think I had the advantage of you. You've played me at my own game, and ably. I thought you capable of nothing but overt action. Clearly, I underestimated you. Don't feel bad, I said. I mean, I look so stupid. Lara smiled. I have one question more, she said. How did you know the curse left him unable to feed? I didn't, I said. Not for certain. I just thought of the worst thing I could possibly do to him, and it wasn't killing. It was stealing. It was taking all of his power away, leaving him to face all the enemies he'd made with nothing. And I figured my mother might have had similar thoughts. Wraith sneered at Lara. You can't kill me, he said. You know that the other lords would never permit you to lead the court. They follow me, little Lara, not the office of the Lord of House Wraith. That's true, father, Lara said. But they don't know that you've been weakened, do they? That you've been made impotent. Nor will they know when you continue to lead them as if nothing had changed. He lifted his chin in an arrogant sneer. And why should I do that? Silver light from Lara's eyes spread over her. It flowed down the length of her hair. It poured over her skin, flickered over her clothing, and dazzled the very air around her. She let her sword belt fall to the ground, and silver, hungry eyes fell upon Lord Wraith. What she was doing was directed solely at him, but I was on the fringes of it, and I suddenly had pants five sizes too small. I felt the sudden, simple, delicious urge to go to her, possibly on my knees, possibly to stay that way. I panicked and took a step back, making an effort to shield my thoughts from Lara's seductive power, and it let me think almost clearly again. Wizard, she said, I suggest you take your friend from this place, and my brother, if he managed to survive the injury. Her skirt joined the belt and I made damn sure I wasn't looking. Father and I, Lara purred, are going to renegotiate the terms of our relationship. It promises to be interesting, and you might not be able to tear yourselves away once I begin. Wraith took a step back from Lara, his eyes racked with fear and with need. He'd totally forgotten me. I moved, and quickly. I was going to pick Murphy up, but I managed to get her moving again on her own, though she was still only half-conscious. The right side of her face was already purple with bruising. That gave me the chance to pick Thomas up. He wasn't as tall as me, but he had more muscle and was no featherweight. I huffed and puffed and got him into a fireman's carry and heard him take a grating, rattling breath as I did. My brother wasn't dead. At least, not yet. I remember 
three more things from that night in the deeps. First was Madge's body. As I turned to leave, it suddenly sat up. Spines protruded from its skin, along with rivulets of slow, dead blood. Its face was ravaged, shapeless, but it formed up into the features of the demon called He Who Walks Behind, and its mouth spoke in a honey-smooth, honey-sweet, inhuman voice. I am returned, mortal man, the demon said through Madge's dead lips, and I remember thee. Thou and I, we have unfinished business between us. Then there was a bubbling hiss, and the corpse deflated like an empty balloon. The second thing I remember happened as I staggered toward the exit with Thomas and Murphy. Lara slid the white shirt from her shoulders to the floor and faced Wraith, lovely as the daughter of death himself, a literal irresistible force, timeless, pale, implacable. I caught the faintest scent of her hair, the smell of wild jasmine, and nearly fell to my knees on the spot. I had to force myself to keep moving to get Thomas and Murph out of the cave. I don't think any of us would have come out of it with our own minds if I hadn't. The last thing I remember was dropping to the ground on the grass outside the cave, holding Thomas. I could see his face in the starlight. There were tears in his eyes. He took a breath, but it was a broken one. His head and his neck hung at an impossible angle to his shoulders. God, I whispered, he should be dead already. His mouth moved in a little fluttering quiver. I don't know how he did it, but I understood that he tried to say, better this way. Like hell it is, I said back. I felt incredibly tired. Hurt you, he almost whispered. Maybe kill you, like Justine. Brother, don't want that. I blinked down at him. He didn't know. Thomas, I said, Justine is alive. She told us where you were tonight. She's still alive, you suicidal dolt. His eyes widened, and the pale radiance flooded through his skin in a startled wave. A moment later, he drew in a ragged breath and coughed, thrashing weakly. He looked sunken-eyed and terrible. What? She's what? Easy, easy. You're going to throw up or something, I said, holding him steady. She's alive. Not... Not good, really. But she's not dead. Not gone. You didn't kill her. Thomas blinked several times and then seemed to lose consciousness. He lay there, breathing quietly, and his cheeks were tracked with the trails of luminous silver tears. My brother would be okay. But then a thought occurred to me, and I said, Well, crap. What? asked Murphy, blearily. She blinked her eyes at me. I peered owlishly up at the night sky and wondered, When is it going to be Tuesday in Switzerland? Chapter 42 I woke up the next morning. More specifically, I woke up the next morning when the last stone on Ebenezer's pain-killing bracelet crumbled into black dust, and my hand began reporting that it was currently dipped in molten lead. Which, as days go, was not one of my better starts. 
Then again, it wasn't the worst one either. Normally, I'd give you some story about how manly I was to immediately attain a state of wizardly detachment and ignore the pain. But the truth was that the only reason I didn't wake up screaming was that I was too out of breath to do it. I clenched my hand, still in dirty wrappings, to my chest and tried to remember how to walk to the freezer or to the nearest chopping block, one of the two. Whoa, whoa, said a voice, and Thomas appeared, leaning over me. He looked rumpled and stylish, the bastard. Sorry, Harry, he said. It took me a while to get something for the pain. Thought I'd have gotten back hours ago. He pressed my shoulders to the bed and said, Stay there. Think of, uh, uh pentangles or something, right? I'll get some water. He reappeared a minute later with a glass of water and a couple of blue pills. Here, take them and give them about ten minutes. You won't feel a thing. He had to help me, but he was right. Ten minutes later, I lay on my bed thinking that I should texture my ceiling with something, something fuzzy and soft. I got up, dressed in my dark fatigue pants, and shambled out into my living room, slash kitchen, slash study, slash den. Thomas was in the kitchen, humming something to himself. He hummed on the key. I guess we hadn't gotten the same genes for music. I sat down on my couch and watched him bustle around. As much as you can bustle when you need to take only two steps to get clear from one side of the kitchen to the other. He was cooking eggs and bacon on my wood-burning stove. He knew Jack about cooking over an actual fire, so the bacon was scorched and the eggs were runny, but it looked like he was amusing himself doing it. And he dumped burned bits, underdone bits, or bits he simply elected to discard on the floor at the foot of the stove. The puppy and the cat were both there, with Mr. eating anything he chose to, and the puppy dutifully cleaning up whatever Mr. judged unworthy of his advanced palate. Hey, man, he said. You aren't going to feel hungry, but you should try to eat something, okay? Good for you and all that. Okay, I said agreeably. He slapped the eggs and bacon more or less randomly onto a couple of plates, brought me one, and kept one for himself. We ate. It was awful, but my hand didn't hurt. You take what you can get in this life. Harry, Thomas said after a moment. I looked up at him. He said, You came to get me. Yeah. I said, you saved my life. I mused on it. Yeah, I agreed a moment later. I kept eating. Thank you. I shook my head. Nothing. No, it isn't, he said. You risked yourself. You risked your friend Murphy, too. Yeah, I said again. Well, we're family, right? Too right we are, he said, a lopsided smile on his mouth. Which is why I want to ask you a favor. You want me to go back with you, I said. Feel things out with Lara. Visit Justine. See which way the future lies. He blinked at me. How did you know? I'd do it too. He nodded quietly, then said, You'll go? As long as we do it before Tuesday. Murphy came by on Monday to report that the investigation had determined that Emma's shooting was a tragic accident. Since no prints had been found, and the eyewitness, and owner of the weapon had vanished, I wasn't in any danger of catching a murder rap. It still looked as fishy as a tuna boat, and it wouldn't win me any new friends among the authorities, but at least I wouldn't be going to the pokey this time around. It was hard for me to concentrate on Murphy's words. Wraith had partially dislocated her lower jaw, and the bruises looked like hell. Despite the happy blue pain pills, 
When I saw Murphy, I actually heard myself growling in rage at her injury. Murphy didn't talk much more than business, but her look dared me to make some kind of chivalrous commentary. I didn't, and she didn't break my nose by way of fair exchange. She took me to an expensive specialist her family doctor referred her to, who examined my hand, took a bunch of pictures, and wound up shaking his head. I can't believe it hasn't started to mortify, he said. Mr. Dresden, it looks like you may get to keep your hand. There's even a small portion on your palm that didn't burn at all, which I have no explanation for whatsoever. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? That's working just fine, Doc, I mumbled. Not that it's had much use lately. He gave me a brief smile. More personal, I'm afraid. How good is your insurance? Um, I said, not so hot. Then I'd like to give you a bit of advice, off the record. Your injury is almost miraculously fortunate, in terms of how unlikely it was that the limb would survive. But given the extent of the burns and the nerve damage, you might seriously consider amputation and the use of a prosthesis. What? I said. Why? The doctor shook his head. We can prevent an infection from taking root and spreading until we can get you a graft to regenerate the epidermis. That's the main possible complication at this point. But in my professional judgment, you'll get more functionality out of an artificial hand than you ever again will from your own. Even with surgery and extensive therapy, which will cost you more than a pretty penny, and even if you continue to recover at the high end of the bell curve, it could be decades before you recover any use of the hand. In all probability, you will never recover any use of it at all. I stared at him for a long minute. Mr. Dresden, he asked. My hand, I responded with all the composure of a three-year-old. I tried to smile at the doctor. Look, maybe my hand is all screwed up, but it's mine, so no bone saws. The doctor shook his head but said, I understand, son. Good luck to you. He gave me a prescription for an antibiotic ointment, a reference to a yet more expensive specialist just in case, and some pain medication. On my way back to the house, I asked Murphy to stop by the drugstore, where I got my prescriptions filled, and bought a bunch of clean bandages and a pair of leather gloves. Well, Murphy said, are you going to tell me what the doctor said? I threw the right glove out the window, and Murphy arched an eyebrow at me. When I get done with my mummy impersonation, I said, waving my freshly bandaged hand, I want to have a choice between looks, Michael Jackson or Johnny Tremaine. She tried not to show it, but I saw her wince. I empathized. If I hadn't been on Thomas's groovy pain drugs, I may have started feeling bitter about the whole thing with my hand. Monday afternoon, I got the blue beetle back from my mechanic, Mike, who is the automotive repair equivalent of Jesus Christ himself, either that or Dr. Frankenstein. I drove the beetle out to a hotel near the airport to meet with Arturo Genosa and the new Mrs. Genosa. How's the married life, Joan? I asked. Joan, dumpy and plain and glowing with happiness, leaned against Arturo with a small smile. Arturo grinned as well and confided, I have never been married to a woman with such creativity. Joan blushed scarlet. We had a nice breakfast, and Arturo presented me with my fee in cash. I hope that isn't inconvenient, Mr. Dresden, he said. We didn't finish the film, 
and the money's gone when I'm forced to declare bankruptcy, but I wanted to be sure you received your pay. I shook my head and pushed the envelope back to him. I didn't save your film. I didn't save Emma. The film? Bah! You risked your life to save Giselle's. And Jake as well. Emma... His voice trailed off. He almost seemed to visibly age. I understand that you may not be entirely free to speak, but I must know what happened to her. Joan's expression froze, and she gave me a pleading look. She didn't have to explain it to me. She knew, or suspected the truth, that Trisha Scrump had been behind the killing. It would break Arturo's heart to hear it about a woman he had once, however ill-advisedly, loved. I'm not sure, I lied. I found Emma and Trixie like that. I thought I saw someone and ran off trying to catch the guy, but either he was faster than me or I'd been seeing things. We might never know. Arturo nodded at me. You mustn't blame yourself, nor must you refuse what you rightfully earned, Mr. Dresden. I'm in your debt. I wanted to turn the money down, but damn, it was Monday, and Kincaid was Tuesday. I took the envelope. Jake Guffey appeared a moment later, dressed in a casual suit of pale cotton. He hadn't shaved, and there was a lot of gray in the scruff of his beard. He looked like he hadn't slept much either, but he was trying to smile. Arturo, Joan, congratulations. Thank you, Joan said. Jake joined us, and we had a nice breakfast. Then we walked with Joan and Arturo to their airport shuttle. Jake and I watched them go. He stared after them for a moment. He looked weary, but if it had bothered him to deceive Arturo about Trixie Vixen, he hadn't let it show. Jake turned to me and said, I guess you weren't the killer. The police said the shooting was accidental. They pulled up Trixie's record and saw all her trips to rehab. Said that she had probably done something stupid while she was stoned. Do you think that? I asked. No way, man. She did everything stupid. Stoned was just a coincidence. I shook my head. I'm sorry I wasn't able to protect Emma. So am I, man. She was going to take her medication. Allergy medication. She didn't want to take it with tap water, so she was going to the green room for a bottle of Evian. She was just standing in the wrong place. Hell of a thing. I feel for her kids, I said. I've done the orphan thing. It sucks. Jake nodded. I don't know how they'll get on without their mom, he said. Not like I have much experience either. But I can't be such a lousy father that they qualify as orphans. I blinked for a second and then said, You wanted to settle down once, you said. Yeah, but Emma decided she wouldn't have me. I nodded. You going to keep acting? Oh, hell no, he said. Silverlight is going to blacklist me like everyone else. And I can't do that and go to PTA and stuff. I got another job lined up. Yeah? I asked. What? Dude, me and Bobby are going to start up a consulting business. Feng Shui. I had no problem with that. Next, I went with Thomas up to the Wraith family homestead north of town. This time we went in the front doors. There were a new pair of bodyguards at the door. They weren't twins, and they didn't have that numb, mindlessly obedient glaze in their eyes. They had evidently been chosen for skill and experience. I was betting on former Marines. Welcome, Mr. Wraith, one of the guards said. Your sister requests that you join her for breakfast in the East Garden. 
They both stood there, waiting to fall in around us, so it didn't exactly come off like an invitation. But from the attention, they might have been as concerned with protecting us as watching us. Thomas took the lead by half a step, and I fell in on his right. I was quite a bit taller than him, but his expression had taken on a confidence and sense of purpose I hadn't seen in him before, and our feet hit the floor in time with one another. The guards accompanied us out into a truly gorgeous terraced garden, a number drawn straight from the Italian Renaissance, with faux ruins, ancient statues of the gods, and a design overgrown enough to prevent seeing much at a time, the better to spend more time exploring. At the top of the highest terrace was a table made of fine metal wire twisted into looping designs with matching chairs spread around it. A light breakfast was laid out on the table, heavier on the fruits and juices than was my habit, but then my habit was usually to eat any leftovers from dinner for breakfast first. Lara sat at the table, wearing white clothing accented with embroidered red roses. Her hair was drawn back into a loose tail, and she rose to greet us both with outstretched hands. Thomas, she said, and Harry. Sis, Thomas replied, should I assume from our greeting that there's been a change of management? She took her seat again, and Thomas joined her. I took a seat opposite him so that I could watch his back, and I didn't spare any energy for false smiles. I didn't want Lara to think that we were going to be buddies now, and I suck at faking them anyway. Lara took in my gaze, her own eyes calculating behind the smile. Oh, it's just the usual little family spat, she said. I'm sure father is going to be angry with me for a while, and we'll forget all about it. And if he doesn't, Thomas asked. Lara's smile grew a little sharper. I'm sure he will. She took a sip of orange juice. Unfortunately, Thomas, I don't know if he's going to be as forgiving to you. Thomas inhaled sharply. I'm sorry, Lara said. She looked like she meant it. You're turning your back on him, I asked. On your brother? Lara lifted a hand. I do not want to, but my father's antagonism with Thomas is well known. If I am to maintain the fiction that my father is in control of his house, Thomas cannot remain. I'm not going to have you removed, of course, Thomas, but I do have to cut you off. You no longer enjoy the protection of House Wraith, in any overt sense, in any case, and I'm truly sorry for it. The twins, he said. They put you up to this. They wanted me gone. Madrigal did, Lara confirmed. Madeline didn't particularly care, but she has always indulged his tantrums, and simply put, I needed their support more than I did yours. Thomas took another deep breath and nodded. Things might change later. I hope so, Lara said. But for now, there is nothing else I can do. Don't approach me openly again, Thomas. Don't visit. Don't claim Wraith as your home. Lose the credit cards, and don't try to touch your accounts. You've got something tucked away? A little, he said. The money doesn't matter. Lara set her orange juice down and leaned back in her seat. But Justine does, she said. Yes. Madrigal would love to get his hands on her. He won't, she responded. I swear it to you, Thomas, that I will keep her safe with me. I can do that much for you, at least. Something eased out of Thomas's shoulders. How is she?
Distant, Lara said. Very vague and distracted. But happy, I think. She speaks of you at times. Yule, his face twisted in distaste. Actually, no, Lara said. Thomas frowned at her. Why don't you go see her, Lara suggested, and nodded toward a lower portion of the garden, where I could see Justine, in her wheelchair, sketching something on a pad across her lap. Thomas rose like a shot, then visibly forced himself to slow down, and went down the winding path to the girl, leaving me alone with Lara. He really doesn't belong here, you know, she said, like Inari. How is she? In traction, Lara said, in a room with her boyfriend at the hospital. He isn't in much better shape. They're always talking, laughing, she sighed. It's got all the signs of love. I spoke to her, as we agreed I would do. I don't think Inari will be one of us after all. She said something about doing feng shui in California. I didn't know she knew martial arts, I said. Lara smiled a little, watching Thomas. He was kneeling beside Justine, looking at her sketches and talking. She looked weak, but delighted, like when they take terminal kids to Disneyland on those talk shows. It warmed the heart at the same time it wrenched it. I didn't like the way it made me feel. Just to be up front with you, Lara, I said. I don't trust you. She nodded. Good. But we've got a hostage crisis on our hands. Of what sort? Family secrets? You know mine about Thomas. Her eyes were unreadable. Yes. And you know about my father. If you spot off about Thomas, I spot off about your dad. We both lose. So I think it would be best if we agreed to a truce of mutual honesty. You don't have to like me, or agree with me, or help me. But be honest, and you'll get the same from me. If I'm about to go hostile, I'll tell you that our truce is over. You do the same. It's good for both of us. She nodded slowly and then said, Your word on it, then? My word. Yours? Yes. You have my word. We both tucked into breakfast then, in silence. Half an hour later, Thomas rose, leaned down, and brushed his lips against Justine's cheek. He stood up rather abruptly, then turned and hurried away with tense, pained motions. He didn't look back. As he approached, I got a good look at his face. His lips were burned and blistered. He walked past us as if we weren't there, his eyes distant. He was always a romantic, Lara sighed. She's protected. The little idiot should never have let himself feel so much for prey. It was that last time together that did it, I imagine. Had to go both ways. Greater love hath no man, Lara agreed. We left. Thomas and I got into the beetle, and I asked him, You okay? His head was bowed. He didn't say anything. I asked after Inari, I said. His eyes moved toward me, though he didn't lift his head. She's in traction, and she's in love. Gonna be weeks before she and Bobby are gonna get to do anything. No crimes of passion. She's free, Thomas said. Yeah. Good. After a minute, he added, No one should have to be like the wraiths, destroying the people you care about the most. You didn't destroy her, and I think Lara really will protect her. 
He shrugged, his expression dark. You slept much since Saturday? No. Well, you need to rest, and I need a dog sitter. I'll drop you at my place. I'll run errands. You drink Max beer until you crash on my couch. We'll figure out what you do next when you're rested, okay? Okay, he said. Thank you. I took him back to my apartment and spent the rest of the morning trying to collect on bills a few people still owed me. I didn't have much luck. I spent the rest of the day applying for loans and had even less luck. Bank guys get so hung up about things like bad credit histories and people who fill in the occupation blank of the application with wizard. I guess it could have been worse. I could have been filling out the reason the loan was needed with payoff mercenary for services rendered. By the end of the day, my hand hurt so badly that it had begun to cut through the painkillers, and I was exhausted. On the way out of the last bank, I forgot what my car looked like for a minute. I missed my street and had to drive around the block, but I missed it the second time, too. I managed to get home before I completely lost sentience, staggered past Thomas and Mr. and the puppy asleep on the couch, and collapsed onto my bed. When I woke up, it was Tuesday morning. I found myself nervously looking around for the bright red dot of a laser sight to appear on my nose while I was in the shower with a plastic trash bag over my bandaged hand. I got dressed, got on the phone, and called Kincaid's number, then waited for him to return the call. It took less than three minutes. It's Dresden, I told the phone. I know. How's the hand? I saw this great Swiss army prosthesis with all these different attachments, but my hopes got crushed. I'm keeping the original. Damn shame, Kincaid said. You need another contract? Wanted to talk about the last one, I said. Uh, I mean, I know you said Tuesday, but I'm still getting some assets turned into cash. I wasn't lying to him. I hadn't sold all my used paperbacks yet, or dipped into my comic collection. I need a little more time. What are you talking about? Time. I need more time. For what? To get your money, I said, leaving out the word dolt. See, I can be diplomatic. The money got here hours ago. I blinked. You can pay me twice if you like, Kincaid said. I won't stop you. Anything else? Uh, no, I don't think so. Don't call me again if it isn't business, he paused. Though I want to give you a piece of advice. What's that? I asked, cleverly hiding my confusion. She went down pretty easy, Kincaid said. Mavra, I mean. Yeah, because of your groovy, cutting-edge vampire hunting weapon, I guess. Thanks. It's paid for, he said. But I mostly gave it to you to make you feel better, and to make sure you didn't shoot me by accident. What about what you said about how cool a weapon it was? Dresden, come on. It's a paintball gun. Mavra's world-class bad news. I expected it to chew apart newbie vamps, sure. You think Mavra would have tottered on out of the smoke to let you kill her? Nice and dramatic like that? If you buy that one, I got a bridge to sell you. I got a sick, sinking little feeling in my stomach. It was her, I said. How do you know? he asked. Well, because... She was wearing the same outfit, I said. Son of a bitch! That sounds really lame, even to me. One corpse looks a lot like another. It could have been a decoy. Could, he said. So my advice to you, Dresden, watch your back. Gee, 
Thanks. No charge. He paused for a second as someone spoke in the background, then said, Ivy says to tell your kitty hello for her. He hung up. I put the phone down, thoughtful. When I turned around, Thomas was sitting up on the couch. Silently, he offered me the business card with Kincaid's account number and the amount of the bill on it. Found it in the laundry, he said. You didn't have to do that, I said. I know, he replied. You really have that much money? He shook his head. Not anymore. That was pretty much everything I'd set aside. I hadn't made a lot of plans for independence. I figured I'd either be dead or running things. I got about fifty bucks to my name now. I sat down on the couch. The puppy snuffled me with his nose and wagged his tail in greeting. Where are you going to go? I asked. I don't know, he said. Guess I can do what my cousin Madrigal does, find some rich girl, he grimaced. I don't know what to do. Look, I said, you really saved my ass. Crash here for a while. I don't want charity. It isn't, I said. Think of that money transfer as a rent payment. You can have the couch until you get your feet under you again. It'll be crowded, maybe, but it isn't forever. He nodded. You sure? Sure. Later, Thomas went to the grocery store, and I went down to the lab to talk to Bob. I filled him in on events. You're sure? Bob asked. It was he who walks behind? I shivered. Yeah, thought I'd killed him. Walkers aren't killable, Harry, Bob said. When you tore him up before, it banished him from the mortal realm. Might have hurt him, made him take time to heal up, but he's still out there. That's comforting, I said. I unwrapped my burned hand. Yuck, said Bob. Can you see anything about the injury, I asked. Burned meat and nerve damage, looks like, Bob said. Hmm. I think it still has reflexes, though. I bet you could use it a little if you did it without thinking about it. I frowned. You're right. I think I did during the fight with Wraith. But look at this. I opened my stiff fingers with my right hand. There was unburned flesh there, just as the doctor had observed. What he didn't know was that the unharmed flesh was in the shape of a sigil in angelic script, the name of one of the fallen angels. Specifically, the same entity imprisoned in an ancient silver coin, at that very moment trapped under two feet of concrete and half a dozen warding spells on the far side of the lab. Lashiel, Bob said. His voice was worried. I thought she was locked up. I thought she couldn't touch me from there, Bob. She can't, Bob said, bewildered. I mean, that's impossible. There's no way she should be able to reach out from there. Sounds kind of familiar, I muttered. I wrapped up my hand again. But that's what I thought, too. And my staff is acting weird. When I start to run power through it, I'm getting excess heat. The runes start glowing like embers, and there's smoke curling up out of them. Seemed like my workings with the staff were coming out a lot bigger than I wanted, too. Did I blow something on the preparation? Maybe, Bob said. But, uh, well, it sounds a lot like hellfire. I hear that some of the fallen really love it. What? Hellfire, Bob said. Um, it's sort of an alternate power source, not a pleasant one, but man, you could really turbocharge violent spells with it.
I know what hellfire is, Bob. Oh, right. Why are you using it then, Harry? I said through clenched teeth. I don't know. I didn't mean to. I don't know what the hell is going on. Hell, Bob said. <laughs> you made with the funny, boss. I had involuntary access to hellfire. How had that happened? Lashiel's sigil on my left palm was the only cool spot on my burning hand. Hell's bells. I shook my head and headed for the ladder back up. As I left, Bob said, Hey, Harry. Yeah? The orange lights in the skull glowed eagerly. Tell me again about Murphy's ass. Thomas came back from the store later that day. Got the puppy a bowl and a collar and food and so on. Nice little guy, real quiet. Don't think I heard him whine at all. He tousled the puppy's ears. You decide on a name? The puppy cocked his head to one side, his ears tilted up with interest, dark little eyes on my face. I never said I was keeping him, I said. Thomas snorted. Yeah, right. I frowned down at the puppy. He's tiny. He's gray. He doesn't make much noise, I said after a minute. I dropped to a knee and held my hand out to the little dog. How about Mouse? Mouse bounced straight up in a fit of eager puppy joy and romped over to lick my hand and chew gently on one of my fingers. Thomas smiled, though it was a little sad. I like it, he said. We started putting groceries away, and it was the strangest feeling. I was used to being alone. Now there was someone else in my personal space, someone I didn't mind being there. Thomas was all but a stranger, but at the same time, he wasn't. The bond I sensed between us was not made weaker by being inexplicable, no less absolute for being illogical. I had a family. Hell, I had a dog. This was a huge change. I was happy about it, but at the same time, I realized that it was going to be a big adjustment. My place was going to be pretty crowded pretty fast, but once Thomas got into his own apartment, it would be more normal. I don't think either of us wanted to be tripping all over each other every time we turned around. I felt myself smiling. It looked like life was looking up. I had started feeling a little crowded already, sure, but I took a deep breath and brushed it back. Thomas wouldn't be here too long, and the dog was certainly a lot smaller than Mr., I could handle a little claustrophobia. I frowned at the giant green bag and asked Thomas, Hey, why did you get large breed puppy chow? This is James Marsters. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Blood Rights by Jim Butcher. This program was executive produced by Patty Peruse, produced by David Rapkin, and directed by Bob Walter. Blood Rights is a production of Penguin Audio, a member of Penguin Group USA, Inc., copyright 2010. All rights reserved. The book, Blood Rights, is available wherever rock books are sold. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.